A scouting we will go. I'll talk with Chris Blessing from BaseballHQ.com about scouting for fantasy prospects next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. Welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 14th. It's show number 24 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Chris Blessing from the scouting team at BaseballHQ.com discussing how scouting prospects for fantasy differs from scouting for real baseball, the best place to sit in the ballpark if you want to do some scouting of your own, the new Baseball HQ Scouting Podcast, and his slumps, pumps, dumps, and jumps, as always. We'll also have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols is by with coverage of the National League, including a bad week for National League first baseman, a mess in the Cincinnati bullpen, and more. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including Jared Kalanick's call-up, significant changes to rosters in Tampa, Texas, and Boston, and more. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon looks at Tampa middle infield prospect Vidal Brujan. In the Frequent Flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Seattle catcher Cal Raleigh. And in Extra Innings, I'll be talking about how Theo Epstein wants to fix the game. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The minor leagues are well underway. We're going to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Chris Blessing, member of the scouting team at BaseballHQ.com. Chris, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. This isn't your first time. Uh, actually, it was at uh, First Pitch Arizona. I think my first or second year I was out there. I remember uh, talking about a prospect named David Bodie. Uh, I guess he's been in the ma- in the major leagues for what three years now. So it's been about it's been a while since I've been on. Well, welcome back. It's great to have you. Uh, let's start with the usual. I'd like to find out how our experts play and in what formats. How many leagues are you in? That kind of thing. Yeah, I'm I'm actually only in five leagues right now. I cut down from about a dozen last year. Uh um during the the pandemic it was easier uh to do fantasy, you know, fantasy leagues because I wasn't at the ballpark all the time since uh, I cover prospects. So I narrowed it down to about five this year. I do one dynasty league, one uh keeper league. Uh the keeper league's a home league. I'm in two uh, industry leagues. I'm in TGFBI, um, and I'm also in a best ball one over at uh, Prospect Live, uh, which I'm not doing good at. Uh, I probably should not be considered industry for that. Uh, And then the final one I do is just a head-to-head league that I've been in for several years that uh, not for money, it's just for bragging rights amongst friends. What influence do you think, Chris, that your interest in prospects has on how you build your rosters? And I imagine it's a little different from keeper and dynasty formats versus uh, single year. Yeah. So like, I'm not a big, uh, when it's single year or redraft leagues, I'm not big in 
acquiring many rookies unless we're talking about later round uh, pickups, you know. Uh, I'm more involved uh, with my dynasty leagues and, and, and there really and truly I try to, because of the minor league rules in both leagues, I try to accumulate as many guys as possible that kind of fit into the, um, you know, matchup, themable type guys. Uh, and then uh, instead of going after top prospects, I tend to go after guys that are, you know, maybe in the complexes or in the rookie ball league, guys that I've had reports on or guys I've seen in person that are just not as heralded. Uh, and like it's paid dividends in the past. Like I got Ronald Acuna, uh, Acuna before everybody else. I got Vlad Guerrero Jr. before everybody else. So uh, in this league, it's been it's been a good thing. And I really kind of use, once they get built up, I kind of make the decision whether I want to trade them or uh, um, keep them. And uh, with Acuna and Guerrero, I've kept them. But with some other guys like uh, Alex Kareerloff uh, and um, uh, Keston Hira, luckily I traded him at his peak. Uh, uh, you know, I, I took advantage of the market at the time. Uh, and the TV in back of you right now, Ozzy Albies is another guy that I, I had that I acquired and I ended up trading away. Is that on a case by case basis? Or when you look at the offer and that kind of thing, or do you have a, a general tilt towards hanging on to particular kinds of prospects, hitters versus pitchers, for example? Yeah, like I try to I try to get speed guys up the middle. That's like my main thing. Like I traded Albies because I was competing and he was the only guy that the, that I was willing to move of like my big 3 or 4 at the time. Uh so I try to get a lot of up the middle speed guys uh and guys that I feel like will uh you know, especially now with contact being such a premium, uh I try to find hitters first. Uh I feel like power will eventually come, so uh, I, I, those are the guys I prioritize right now. When I was playing in a, in a home league, that was a keeper league. I was always willing to trade a pitcher because I, they're just so risky. And so, you know, you can't really count on them to the same extent as you can count on a top hitting prospect because hitting is more of a, of a skill that I think translates and, uh, it's easier to fail as a pitcher, I guess, oddly enough, even though it's easier on the field to fail as a hitter, but uh, in the prospect ranks, was I on the right track, do you think, or should I have been? Yeah. More I, I mean, a lot of, a lot of my, uh, you know, another HQ or Jock Thompson, uh, he helps, he helps us with our HQ 100 every year. And I asked him one time, why do you always have pitchers so far? Uh, down compared to everybody else on your list and he said well you know they're not really uh reliable uh he's like i understand that they're they're you know good prospects and they they could be a sp1 but he's like what's the actual rate of them becoming that so what i've done is like i did a lot of thinking last year and while i've never really kept on to pitching in my rankings i've changed how i rank pitchers my top pitcher was other than jock of course in our seven uh, seven guys that contribute to the HQ 100. My pitchers were like, my first pitcher was Sixto Sanchez outside the top 15. Um, so, I mean, that's my philosophy with pitching is not to hold on to them unless they're unknown commodity. Does that filter over into how the, how you've drafted in the, at the big league level? So you get into a draft of late, of course, we've known that, uh, 
people are much more willing to draft the Jacob deGroms and Garrett Coles in the first round than even two or three years ago. Uh, does that reflect how you look at it, or are you still hitters first, even at the big league? I, I'm still I'm still hitters hitters first, but I've noticed that, uh, especially this year in my redrafts, that I really hit pitching hard from about round five to about round 15. Because uh, I feel like there's a bunch of guys that are in that same spot um, that, that that are easy to get uh, that don't really, you know, might not get the accolades of somebody else. Uh, you know, I, I took advantage. I got a lot of Marcus Stroman. I think in two of the three redraft leagues I'm involved in, I have Marcus Stroman. And uh, he was a guy that I drafted like in the teens. And it's just, I know he was coming off an injury and the COVID stuff, but like it, to me, it made sense to get him, especially knowing how uh, the premium on contact on the other end, you know, I want guys, even guys that are like control artists. Uh, you've been working for Baseball HQ in the scouting area for quite a while now. Uh, how did you get interested in baseball prospects as something that you were, that you were going to pursue like this? Well, actually, in 2009, I befriended somebody online, a guy named Mike Newman. He used to be a fan graphs writer. And Mike and I have become really good friends. Mike, Mike Newman actually kind of retired from prospect writing because the, the money wasn't there uh, in about 2000. I think 2014 was his last year active. Uh, but like, uh, just started talking about Mets prospects. I grew up a Mets fan. Uh, I had seen a Mets prospect, a guy that uh, you've never heard of, obviously, named Kyle Allen. Uh, and Kyle Allen was outperforming the top uh, prospects that were in uh, the Sally League at that time. It might have been 2009 or 2010 when I really, you know, kind of took hold of this. But uh, Allen, um, like at that time in that league, Julio Tehran was there, Jerry's Familia, uh, and a few other names. I, I, that are escaping me right now but like this kid was better and uh nobody was uh reporting on him unfortunately he had a back injury about a year later uh and just never could get back to where he was but like to me he was a better prospect at the time as uh, than julio tehran who is in most everybody's top 50 I think I remember Mike Newman, uh, Roto Scouting, and, and he, he wrote yeah. a lot about how how bad prospect and scouting writing was and that kind of thing yeah. uh, later on in his career. Yeah, I remember Mike Newman. I don't know that I've ever met him, though. Uh, so how long have you been scouting and writing about it professionally? So from 2009 to 2010, I went to Bullpen Banter in 2011, uh, which is now on the uh, defunct site as well. Uh, and uh wrote there kind of got where i was getting till about 2014 where i went over to roto scouting a lot of my um i, I probably had the second most articles over there after mike uh he retired from things and i went to baseball hq in 2015 uh so like i guess i really started scouting in 2011 with baseball with bullpen banter um a lot of those guys have now gone on to organizational jobs uh some of them are still very involved in like media. Uh, Steve Fordino, Fordino is uh, uh, um, Prospect Pipeline, which does a lot of amateur coverage, a lot of prep coverage. Uh, we had Al Scarupa, who is the, who's now with the Chicago Cubs as a scout, and, and, and several others. It was a very uh, 
good learning experience. They were all kind of my mentors. Uh, I tell people I ride the right coattails. Uh, and everywhere I've gotten, uh, guys that I've worked with, uh, uh, guys that I completed, competed against here that I would sit next to and just discuss, uh, discuss baseball with, uh, have all gone on to brighter and better pastures in their lives within baseball. When you're doing your scouting in a general sense, not talking specifically about players, but what do you think the key tools are to be a successful scout? Well, I think observation is number one. I also think going into a situation and any player being prepared, uh, and that means researching. Uh, that's something I didn't learn until honestly very late in my, uh, in my evaluation career uh, is, uh, you know, being prepared. I, and then being prepared so much that then when you're there, uh, if something surprises you, you can change your point of view. Uh, I was scouting um, Hunter Green the other night, uh, and he, I think he had like 34 pitches over 100 miles per hour, something that, something unbelievable. Like, I went in there expecting 100-mile-per-hour heat. I didn't expect 34 out of 43 fastballs being 100 miles per hour. So, like um, – um, and really, truly, the more impressive thing about the whole game wasn't the velocity. It was his ability to start hitting locations with that velocity. And that was, you know, I could see a game plan inning three through five that honestly, looking at video previously, I hadn't seen in any of his starts in 2018 or 2017. When you said that at first, I was, my first thought was being prepared when you're, especially when you're talking about particular players can be a double-edged sword because if you're, if you read a lot about a particular player, minor leagues or major leagues, and then you get a chance to see him or you ha have a, uh, a possibility of really finalizing your opinion, there's a risk of confirmation bias. I've read that this guy can't control his curveball. And so you ignore the curveballs that he is controlling, which may be most of them, and you, and you fixate on the two or three that are way out of the zone. And you think, yep, there it is, bad, bad curveball control. When in fact, it wasn't bad curveball control. It's just that your mind was set up to see the curveball control that way because of your preparation. So it's a, it's a trick to avoid that, that trap. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's one of the things I don't necessarily rely on reading other people before I go out. Uh, with Green, I did because I knew that there was major changes that I had seen in video from spring training. So like in 2017, 2018, he had a longer arm circle than he had in spring training of this year. So like I went and, and researched it, and I think it was either a Dave Loria at Fangraphs or uh, Trent Rosencrantz at, at The Athletic. I read somewhere where uh, Kyle Brody, who is uh, the driveline guy, talked about how he shortened his arm uh, circle. So like seeing that and then going to seek that out on, on the line online is, is kind of a research, but most of my research is watching video, getting velocities and, uh, also pitch mix. I mean, that's, that's the key thing. Uh, so like I scout a guy before I go out there and I might also talk to contacts too. Uh, and in this case, I have, uh, a few contacts in Arizona that work the complexes. So I, I contacted them and it was funny. None of them saw them this, this, this year. So like, uh, I couldn't get any more confirmation beyond just, I think, less than an inning worth of uh, work in a game against the Angels this spring. 
So a successful scouting pattern seems to be get yourself ready by looking at the stats, by looking at the progress through the minor leagues, I'm going to guess, reading a little bit, looking at video, finding out what other people whose opinions you respect have said about this player in in the recent past, I'm going to guess. Once you get your eyes out there, though, once you're looking at this a hitter to start with, what are you looking for when your eyes are actually on this player? Well, on the hitter, it's uh, it's five things that I kind of concentrate on. I concentrate on a his comfort in the in in the in the box, comfort with his swing. I want somebody, you know. I know there's guys that wave their bats. I know that there's guys that get almost stiff like a statue. I want them to be able to. Uh, I want to see them how they react to things. So like. When I was watching Hunter Green, I was watching the hitters on the other team. Mind you, there wasn't really any big prospects on there, but they were, you know, they were still guys and you still pay attention to them. And uh, none of them were comfortable in the zone. Uh, And then I waited until the next pitcher came in and realized that some of them were still not comfortable in the zone. Like they just weren't comfortable. uh, And they were probably trying to guess what was coming. They weren't reacting. And that's, that's number one that I look for. Number two is how they get to the hitting position. That's essentially how they cock their bat back, uh, how they um, uh, coil their hips. I want to see how smooth that operation is. Then you go into the swing. And the swing, what that tells you is I'm looking at trajectory. I'm looking at the speed. I'm looking at the plane. I'm looking at the length. And I'm also looking at... uh, um, uh, what do you call it? I'm also looking at how consistent that swing plane is. So like, I don't feel like you can really judge a hitter on one look. Uh, Cause you might get four at bats. And like, I, I did a prep guy earlier this year that I did six at bats and got two swings out of him. So like, you, you know, that's not, that's not a good way to scout. And even though one of those swings was very pretty, the other one was not, uh, he was fooled really badly. Um, then the other thing is, is I like to see how he keeps his weight back. And then the, I think the fifth thing that I, I haven't, uh, I think the fifth thing now is um, I'm looking at how his bat connects with the ball. Uh, essentially, where is his barrel when it hits the ball, uh, hit, hits the pitch? Um, and so like a lot of guys, uh, you know, it's always been, you know, get to the bat, get to the ball. Um, in front of the plate that's where you want to get barrel more and more and and this is one of the reasons why I'm you know and we also we already said something about Keston Hua Hura uh, the thing that always worried me about Hura was that he allowed the ball to travel deep into the zone before getting barrel on it because uh, he always trusted his hands and trusted that kind of thing any sort of like issue like if something's not working for a guy like that he's going to go into prolonged slumps. Uh, and like, this has been like almost a year and a half type slump for Hura. Uh, so like those type of things matter. So while I really like the fact that he hit, uh, you know, the ball was able to get into the kitchen uh, and he was still able to uh, get barrel on it. Hindsight being, you know, 2020 going back to his, the bat, they were his only barreled contact that I saw. I never saw him do the traditional out in front of the home plate, uh, getting to the barrel there. Uh, The only place he was getting barrel was deep in the zone. So there was 
lesser margin of error, which meant that he was more than likely going to have some issues with prolonged struggle. Yeah, as soon as you were talking about that, I thought about that idea of margin of error. If you're letting the ball get, you know, towards your back foot, you're really starting to cut it very fine. Or if you're if you get the bat on it at all, you're going to push it foul or foul it straight back. And and and, and as contrast, I know he's the, one of the best hitters in the league. Juan Soto can connect with a ball anywhere, like uh, whether it's out in front of the plate, whether it's in his barrel. Uh, but like that guy. He can do that. Uh, Hura, who hit a lot of line drives, he just didn't do much of it out in front of home plate. And that's that's where uh, a guy might miss, you know, because he's so used to being able to let a ball travel. And if his swing's even a, uh, a little bit off, he's just not going to get to those balls. When you're looking at a hitter, how do you account for the the quality of the inbound pitching, and the and the style of the inbound pitching, left versus right, fastball versus junk ball type of uh, approach? It seems like if you're expecting a guy's swing to be consistent as one of the things that you're looking for, and he's he's dealing with somebody who's quite adept at up, down, in, out, then he's going to have to adjust his swing to succeed, or he's going to keep you know swinging with that perfectly consistent swing and. and getting bad results the same exact way every time against a big variety of pitching. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, especially on like the prep ranks, I see a lot of really bad pitching, uh, and bad pitching can tell you a lot about a hitter. Um, whether they, um, whether they're seeing like, for instance, uh, Joe Adele, who's a guy that has struggled since when he's been in the major leagues, uh, the knock on him is he doesn't see spin well. Uh, and in the big leagues, you're seeing advanced spin. You're not seeing that advanced spin in the minor leagues. And he got all the way up to double A totally fine. Like uh, you saw him and he couldn't show you those those moments where a good pitcher came in because like unless somebody was rehabbing, or unless somebody was a super prospect with good spin on his fastball and good spin on his breaking ball and was tunneling pitches and using pitch mix, he could fake it. I, I had a prospect once tell me, and I won't name his name because he never made it, uh, that like he had a great year in the Sally League because he just he's like, I could recognize the fastball. He's like, I knew it was another pitch, but like I just lay, laid off and hoped that the pitcher was bad. And I figured <laughs> that eventually I'd learn how to decipher that. But then I got to double A and no, there was no way to decipher it there. Uh, Cause everything looked like a fastball out of most guys' hands. He's like, I cleaned up on, on the, the 10th or 11th guy on the pitching staff, but he's like, I could not hit uh, those other guys because I wasn't cheating anymore. I just cheated for fastball. And I, I knew how to read it and I knew how to hit it. Uh, so like, it is a little difficult to judge that, uh, when you're talking about lower minors. Uh, so I try to pair up guys with the right pitchers. Uh, you get excited. I, uh, for instance, uh, a few weeks ago, I had a chance to see a top, uh, top prep prospect that I can't name because I'm, I'm, uh, I work for an organization, uh, during a contract with them. Um, a contractor. So uh, I can't name names, but I saw a top uh, prep uh, uh, 2021 draftee a few weeks ago. 
And like the only reason why it made sense for me to go, because everybody's gotten plenty of views at this guy and the dude will probably not be where, where the team that I work for is drafting. Like he'll be gone by then uh, was to see him against a guy that is going to be a top college arm because at least, Hey, the guy might be a pro someday, but like to have that combination and be able to see that and see how he did against that guy, which he did really well against him, made it a lot easier to it, to stand on, you know, stand on my report prior against pitchers that aren't that good, that aren't going to go to college or are going to go to small college. So like, yeah, it matters a lot to see that, but I'll say that usually the best of the best, it don't matter who they're facing. Well, you mentioned the five keys to when you're looking at a hitter. What are your keys when you actually sit down and get eyes on a pitcher? Well, that's actually a lot more complicated because you're looking at so many different facets of things. Uh, uh, it goes from motion, uh, consistency of motion. Uh, I think I think a hitter can be a bad athlete. I also think a pitcher can be a bad athlete, but I think a pitcher has to um, – like a hitter, if they have good hand-eye and they're strong and all that kind of stuff, their athleticism is not as important. But athleticism for a pitcher who's having trouble repeating his delivery is very important. So I, I look at his body, his frame. I look at his delivery. Uh, I try to look at it from, from behind home plate and to the side. Uh, nowadays, I just hook up a camera on the side. I don't go over there anymore because I'm lazy. Um, but like, uh, and, and also it's easier to chart pitches from that, from behind home plate as well. Uh, I want to see where he's throwing strikes. If he's throwing to the mitt, uh, that's a, that's a huge thing. I want to see the sort of spin he's getting off the ball. I want to see the trajectory from his slot, from the slot that he throws. I want to try to measure out his extension. Um, I have like this, um, this thing in my mind and, uh, I can't really, I haven't been able to put it to words, but like I can figure out usually if a guy is using his height or not using his height in his delivery. Uh, I had a kid who's in a Pirates organization, I can't remember his name right now, a few years ago, that was six foot 10 and his extension was a six two extension. Like he barely extended, like he didn't use his six foot 10 size. Um, Eric Hillman, uh, former Mets guy, the uh, I mean, when I was a kid, I remember watching him and I remember them saying he doesn't really use his size. Uh, and so, like, I actually found video a few years ago just to see if that was true. And like, it was like watching that guy with the Pirates. He didn't use his six foot 10, six foot 11 frame. What made Randy Johnson so successful was that he used all of his body. Uh, so, like, I want to see that. Like, I was high on uh, Tristan McKenzie last year. Because this kid was six foot three beanstalk uh, type guy, but he was like throwing it like a six foot six extension. And he was thrown from an angle that you're not used to seeing, which is upper upper three quarters. Most guys are three quarters these days. 
You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Chris Blessing from the BaseballHQ.com scouting team. And Chris, uh, you regularly write at Baseball HQ, and one of your articles that appears regularly is called The Eyes Have It. And this is when you do sit down and get pen to paper on players you've actually seen live on the field, in the batter's box, on the mound. How do you choose the players or teams that you want to get your eyes on? Well, um one of the things that uh, Mike Newman taught me when we were starting Roto Scouting was to get to the players that people want to read. Uh, so it's being able to identify that. I, 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 it's quite funny at this point, Brent, who's Brent Hershey, who's my editor, um, who's the, uh, you know, the co-GM of, uh, of Baseball HQ. He doesn't even ask me anymore. He knows that I'm going to pick guys that, are, that mean something. So usually I'll go, uh, you know, just through my preparation, I'll, I'll have a list of names. Uh, luckily, because the way that we handle how our um, uh, off-season work with the book, with the minor league baseball analyst goes, we have assigned um, organizations. And those assigned organizations are um, key to making sure that you're seeing the right guys. So a lot of my assigned organizations or organizations that I regularly see. Uh, for instance, the Reds are here in Chattanooga. I live about 20 minutes, 25 minutes from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And uh, they're right here. The Rome Braves are 50 minutes away. So like, I know who they play. I have a list of, uh, of things, uh, of, of guys that I need to see. I talk to contacts. Uh, I, I, uh, was uh, talking to a writer from uh, that I used to share a, a, a dynasty team with, uh, Michael Rathburn from um, RotoWire, and we were talking the other day, and he's like, everybody that you wanted to acquire because this league went out, went under this year. Uh, every guy that you had picked is doing really well this year, and I was like, a lot of that is having guys to count on who get eyes on these players, whether they're amateurs or whether they're in, uh, in Arizona or in Florida. So um, that's how I kind of build this. I don't really go stat looking anymore. Uh, but what has also caused some issues in the past is I also look at ages of guys when they're in league. And like, I totally missed on Evan Gaddis, uh, for instance, back early, oh, early um, teens, whatever, the earlier part of last decade, uh, because I, saw an older guy in a ball and I was like, well, he's doing good and stuff, but like, yeah, like he's really going to do anything. And like, I don't think he ever made an all-star team, but he was a regular catcher for five, six seasons in the major league. So uh, that was a, that was a guy that was a big miss for me because I, I used age as a, as a deterrent to me actually bearing down on a guy. Every so often, Chris, we read about or hear about uh, a situation where a scout went to look at a player on, on in the minors or even in other sports, like a, go look at a college team to see some linebacker or something, and you, the scout sat down and he, and he started taking notes on the one guy, and all of a sudden he looks to another guy on the same team or on the opposing team that he had no interest in, and all of a sudden said, oh my gosh, I'm looking at the wrong guy. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, um, Colby Allard, who uh, was a top prospect for the Braves and now with the Rangers organization, uh, he was a first-round pick and had not played in his draft year as a pro, 
uh, and had missed part of uh, 20, whatever year it was. It might have been 2016 or 20. It was 2016, I think, uh, because of injury. And he made a late uh, late season start. He was he got got started. It was actually Jimmy Buffett night. I remember how outrageously ugly the jersey he was wearing. Uh, uh, and it was it was in July. I, I can I can even see that too. And I I'm sitting there and stuff, and I'm like, all right, you know, it it, it looks good. He just got off injury. It's pretty much what you see today. Uh, you know, I, I kind of got fooled on that and duped. Uh, and then the, they were playing the Marlins. Uh, single a affiliate i think was in greensboro at the time and there was this right hander who threw a uh and they say you never give a uh plus plus grade to a change up uh but like i gave a plus plus grade to this change up in in uh while he was warming up and that was chris paddock uh so i got to see chris paddock and write about him before he even got traded before the tg uh, uh tommy john surgery and i really feel uh, uh like you know saris even wrote about it I think last year, like shared my scouting report that I saw back in 2016, 2017 of this guy that like just literally, you know, was much better than what I expected him to be. Um, Because I didn't really think that he was the, you know, he was the get there. He was a sixth round pick out of Texas. He had, uh, he was, you know, kind of a slight tall frame, you know, it wasn't really anything that you would, you know, expect to throw. Uh, low 90s with a with a killer changeup and be able to command everything. Uh, and, and I also had one the, my last game that I scouted in 2019 uh, in Montgomery. I went to go see Royce Lewis and Alex Kirillov and uh, Trevor Larnich. And uh, this guy pitched the second game of the no, of the doubleheader. His name is Joe Ryan, who's in the Tampa Bay Rays organization. And I was like, this guy is like one of the best pitchers I've seen this year. And then I go and look at him and, and really and truly what it was, was he was throwing from, he was throwing the ball like he was playing water polo. And then I go and I research him. And the next thing I see is Josh Norris from Baseball America had just written an article about him being a water polo player. And he was a guy that the Rays drafted from a small California uh, high school. And like, you know how the Rays are. They love their guys thrown from different angles and being a little crazy kind of thing. And now, mind you, this kid's not going to probably be an ace pitcher or anything. But like this kid's like a six year major leaguer with the Rays and wherever else he goes uh, once he's ready. And he's actually uh, pitched extremely well so far to start the year in triple A. But like, and really and truly, you look at the fastball, and it's just ordinary fastball, ordinary spin. Uh, and in that same article that Josh Norris wrote, Trevor Larnich, who I was seeing at the time, had had commented about how he had never faced a right-handed pitcher, Larnich is a lefty, that he couldn't see quickly. Like he just, you just don't pick it up because his his arm angle is uh, like a, you know, he's like flinging his his arm like a water polo player. So. Uh, you know, so not a big name, but like that was a guy like, oh my God, I need to write him up. Uh, and I did. I used to play a little water polo. I had to stop because my horse drowned. It seems, (laughs) (laughs) it seems to me that when you're looking at the player, maybe over the weekend, what do you get? Two or three looks at a hitter, one look at a pitcher, probably something like that. Yeah, that's usually my goal. 
it seems to me that we talked earlier about the possibility of, of not seeing things that you weren't prepared for, that there might be a bias, and you've obviously worked to overcome that part of it. But what about the possibility that you go and watch a, pit, a player and you have such a limited opportunity to see him that you might not be getting the actual story because he may just, you know, a, a blister on his heel or, a, you know, maybe a, some little problem or maybe just has a bad couple of days and goes 0 for 8 and doesn't look good doing it. How do you avoid letting that more impactful personal interaction with a player affect your overall view of the player based on a wider range of, of research and sources? Well, you know, I... I saw Reed Detmer's pitch, who's the Angels' top, I guess, top pitching prospect at this point. Uh, first round pick out of Louisville last uh, last year, uh, and I saw him uh, opening night, Double A. Uh, it was his first start as a professional because of the pandemic, and it was in Double A, uh, facing against Hunter Green with a lot of media present, and uh, he was not good at all. So what, what you're looking for in a start like that is I know the history of the player. I had scouted him uh, via video last, uh, last year. Uh, I think I might've even seen him in 2018 on a weeknight in Vanderbilt. I haven't looked into it. It's just like the arm looks familiar. I was looking at somebody totally different of uh, somebody on Vanderbilt at that point. Uh, so like, I wasn't really, I wasn't focused on that guy, but I just remember kind of seeing that arm angle and being like, hmm, that guy looks familiar. Uh, but he didn't have a good game. Uh, but the thing is, is what I was looking for was what, what you look for is you look for if you have a past history with a player, even if it's on video, is he doing those things that you saw before? Is he just off? And like in my in this case, he was just off. I think the moment was a little too grand for him. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about young men. He's 21 years old uh, and they're not machines. So you've got to kind of, you know, look at, take your path and, and realize that kind of thing. But like, you know, when a guy's struggling and he's not repeating his delivery, then that there's on the mound, that's, that's a red flag. Uh, I saw Luis Castillo really bad before he got called up. Uh, and I just was, I was at the game and I just said, I'm not writing him up. There's no way I can write him up on this start. You just know sometimes uh, that like a guy is not good uh, that night. He, something was off and it was like a 33 degree. I know you're in Canada, but here in the South when it's 33 degrees, we're all bundled up. Uh, oh, we're uh, bundled up here like, too. <laughs> I'm sure. But like, you know, here's a kid who's from, from the Caribbean pitching 33 degrees in, in late April in the South. And it was something that I probably, you know, looking at where he's pitched in the prior to that point, he had never been out of the Southern United States uh, or, or the Dominican or, or, you know, uh, uh, Arizona, like this kid had never been out of those places. So like, I think that 33 was a huge shock to him. Uh, and so like, I just didn't scout him. And I remember there was a scout there who's one, actually has become a contact of mine who told me, he's like, what are you going to do? And I was like, I'm not going to do anything with this guy. Uh, so it's like kind of knowing, uh, knowing what you're seeing and knowing, you know, that this is not part of the pattern. It, 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 there's gut, a lot of gut involved in that as well. 
Last week I talked to Ryan Bloomfield from Baseball HQ here on Baseball HQ Radio, and he was telling a story about Luis Castillo, whom you just mentioned, and uh, trying to figure out why he had had such a poor couple of opening outings to start this season. And he looked at the temperature. And he said the same thing. It was like 30 degrees oh, wow. on, one of, on one of his starts and maybe f- under 40 for the other one. And he went back and looked at all of, I don't know where he got the information from, but he went back and looked at a whole bunch of Luis Castillo starts. And every time he pitched in cold weather, he did poorly. And every time yeah. he pitched in hot weather, he did great. And so it's a bit of intel. So you got to maybe, if you're going to get a guy like Luis Castillo, you hate to bench him for streaming purposes. But if you look at the uh, weather forecast and it says, you know, cloudy with a chance of snow maybe you take Luis have a seat we'll, we'll get back to you next week when, when you're in Arizona or, or Miami or someplace like that uh, yeah. in fantasy Chris a lot of player analysis focuses on free agents who are coming up every weekend or every day in some league formats when we're looking for those free agents how well do the things you look for in prospects map to the things you're looking for in players who are already in the big leagues or very close well, um, one of the problems I have is I don't watch, and, and the reason why I'm defeatable in, in fantasy sports is I don't watch a lot of Major League Baseball. Uh, last year was the first year that I've actually sat down and watched more than 20 games. Uh, just because I'm, I'm working all the time. I might listen to something. I might do that. Uh, and this, this, the month of April was great. I probably watched the game every night. Uh, uh, five, five of the seven nights of the week, I watched the game, but then baseball season started and, uh, just the juggling of minor league coverage, uh, juggling some of my contract at work, my day job, all of that stuff. MLB goes out the window. We had the Braves game on in the office when I left. Uh, and like I was working the whole time. I, I think I saw Dansby Swanson do something good. I'm not hundred percent sure, but like that is literally, so like what I end up doing is I end up looking at matchups. I end up relying on experts, uh, specifically a lot of the baseball HQ people. I read a lot of their stuff. Uh, I'll listen to podcasts, including this podcast. Uh, I've, uh, you know, I, I try to look at stats and I look at matchups, uh, and my free agents aren't guys that I'm hoping to hold on to the rest of the year. I'm, I'm just kind of uh, trying to put band-aids on stuff because I just don't have the time to look at, uh, to actually watch these guys. I talked with Rob Gordon about this a few years ago, but I think it's worth updating. How important is age for level in uh, scouting prospects? And what are the ages and what are the levels? Well, you know, something I... You know, you want to see, of course, uh, so now we only really have, uh, we're talking about four full season leagues. Uh, they contracted all the non-complex, and when I say non-complex, the complexes are uh, Arizona, Dominican, and uh, Florida. That's where teams have their own complexes. The guys, uh, you know, the spring training complexes are the Dominican complexes. Those guys should be under 20, Okay. Uh, and you would preferably want those guys to be 17, 18 if they're um, in, in Arizona or Florida complexes uh, that are from the Caribbean. Uh, for North American players, 18 to 19. Um, so you could get an idea. Teenagers is a good thing in those, those leagues to see their performance. Uh, then uh, Class A, uh, if a first rounder's there, uh, he, he better be under 20 if he's a prep guy. Um, 
Uh, and if he's not, he better move quick. Uh, so uh, 20 is kind of my thing for those, but um, excuse me, 21, 22 year old, they're fine. Uh, same with high A goes up a little, maybe go by a year, about 23. Double uh, A is like a 23, 24. And then triple A is like 25 and even 26. Um, uh, you know, some guys just develop slower. Uh, and I'll be honest, I absolutely can't stand triple A baseball because uh, it's all uh, guys that were in the major leagues and a few sprinkles of prospects. And it's uh, that's a very honestly, it's for me, it's a hard place to scout just because uh, um, it, it just is because of your your concentration level. Because you're seeing, like, I saw a game uh, two years ago against the, it was the Rangers versus uh, um, Dodgers AAA. And the Dodgers AAA had all of these great players. Uh, uh, Gavin Lux was there. Um, 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 DJ Peters was there. There were a few other guys. Uh, um, the, the starting pitcher, May, he was there. Uh, so, like, I got a really good view of a lot of really good prospects. Uh, the starting pitcher for the Rangers uh, AAA team was Tim Dillon, um, uh, who makes jokes now on, on Twitter, who's very, very funny, by the way. And I, I uh, suggest uh, checking him out because he, he really he really knows who he is uh, or who he was. I think he's retired now. But like that was the type of players like he was it was all these guys that were 4A players who maybe got a taste of the big leagues. Like I saw Jeremy Hermita there in 2014 and like, you know, there's not a lot of things you can do with that. Major League Baseball notoriously announced in the offseason that they were cutting back on their support for affiliated teams, reducing the number of affiliated teams, that kind of thing. What effect has that had or will that have, do you think, on the future of prospect scouting? Well, for us, um, it's it's uh, it's going to be a little harder. Um uh, some of this is because of COVID, uh, but some of it is because of realignment. Uh, for instance, in Chattanooga, uh, it's, it's now, it's been realigned. The Southern League is now the AA South League. It's been aligned to 10 teams, from 10 teams to eight teams. And because of this year, I don't get to see three of those eight teams come through Chattanooga. So now I'm going to have to go to Rocket City, which is the brand new franchise uh, that moved from Mobile or Tennessee, uh, Knoxville area, or even Birmingham to get the rest of the league. So like it's actually made my coverage harder and more reliant on video. Overall, for us, you know, just evaluating prospects, I don't think much changes. Um, I think the one thing that's really changing us is the experimental uh, rules that they've put in place. Uh, I, I talked to two organizational scouts that work different uh, low A leagues this last weekend and just saying that like the combination between COVID, uh, these guys not working out with their teams except for the fall for like a few weeks in the fall, uh, the combination of rule changes and all that made watching those games hard. Uh, and like, I had one of them say, I don't know if I can trust any of my reports on any of the hitters because like, they just seem so off right now. Um, like they haven't seen live pitching in so long. Uh, 
so that's a big issue. Uh, the low A that's close to me, low A, I think it's called low A East, uh, and it's close to Brent Hershey as well. Um, they have an automated strike zone there. And that automated strike zone, uh, I don't know why you test on guys that can't throw strikes. Uh, <laughs> but that's pretty much what they've done. They've tested, and the walk rate has gone up, uh, I think, four walks a game. And, like, you know, I was I was watching a Lynchburg game uh, uh, a few weeks ago because one of the or, – or last week, I should say, not a few weeks ago – one of the guys that started is a guy I saw a lot during my coverage for two different orgs, a guy named Xavion uh, uh, Curry. He's a guy I've always just liked. He's a short, uh, he's like five foot nine, five foot ten, uh, throws from a weird angle. Like I think he's a reliever, uh, major league reliever. Like I really like him uh, in, in that in that vein. Uh, but like he was fine because he could command his pitches. But the poor kid on the other team, like. Uh, like you're you're there, and I, I I could imagine being the scouting thing, just being like, oh my god, use a real umpire to just move this game along. Um, so like that's actually causing more trouble to people than than anything. You know, when I was young and going to university, I put myself through school umpiring baseball, and uh, there was a general agreement amongst all the umpires that you never wanted to umpire below the age of sixteen because the games were so damn long. Because yeah. nobody could throw a strike, and, and it was walk after walk, and after about three innings of that, your knees are sore, your feet are sore, it's hot, you're sweating. All of a sudden, yeah. that strike zone starts looking like Eric Gregg's size, and I don't mean the size of yeah. his strike zone, I mean the size of him. It just, yeah. you know, <laughs> anything that's within hitting distance, even if it requires leaning, it's a strike, because I, I want to go home and get something to eat. So maybe it's, it's the same thing here. And here's another thing that I don't think people realize. There's there's such things as umpire scouts that work for the association for Major League Baseball that go to the minor leagues and, and scout these guys uh, to see if they can get their promotions and stuff. And, like, you'll – during games that an umpire scout is at, I feel like the games are longer. Uh, and it's because the guys are actually trying to call a real strike zone. Uh, as opposed to not, you know, yeah. uh, trying to get the game over with. So uh, luckily this last weekend, it didn't really hurt me. I know the umpire scout was here. There's one that's based pretty close to me. Um, so like I see him around every so often, but it was guys that were commanding their pitches. Like he, he was there for Nick Lodolo's start, who's a Reds prospect. And like Lodolo probably could pitch in a major league sometime at I don't know, maybe in the uh, uh, July, August months of this year, uh, his command is impeccable for a minor leaguer. So, like, it was a great game to see if this guy knew what a strike or a ball was, you know. So, uh, um, so it didn't really affect that game, but it could, it affected the second game of the doubleheader, where I felt the game went longer because they were trying to uh, be too fine with their strike calls. Well, Chris, this has been terrific so far. Uh, why don't you take a quick break, grab some water, sunflower seeds or some dip, and we'll get back to you for part two in a few minutes. All right, man. Thanks. Chris Blessing is a member of the scouting team at BaseballHQ.com, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up now, we have our Market Watch player news reports. Nick has the National League news. Ray has the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. 
In the Facts and Flukes Spotlight, Stephen Nickran shines his analytical light on Minnesota outfielder Byron Buxton. In the GM's office, Ray Murphy, hey, I know that guy, he looks at some May assessments of his fantasy teams and hitting the trade market. And in Playing Time Tomorrow roster forecasting, Jock Thompson looks at all five teams in the American League West, including the shortstop situation in Oakland, the surprisingly able Seattle bullpen, potential changes in the Houston outfield, and more. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at Baseball HQ all the time, player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in Brad Coleman's Market Pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, we have tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up, there's expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're all why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Time now for our Market Watch player news reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League report, and leading off, it's our National League news and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Not a good week for first baseman in the National League, Nick. Uh, let's talk about a few of them because uh, some of these are fairly important names. Uh, starting in Los Angeles, the Dodgers' first baseman Edwin Rios is going to have uh, surgery to repair a torn labrum, and he's done for the year, according to the team. Uh, Jock Thompson covers the Dodgers for playing time today. What are the ramifications now with the loss of Edwin Rios? Well, you know, this might have been one of the reasons that Rios was off to a dreadful start. Uh, the L.A. injury news just keeps getting worse. And one of the big beneficiaries is left-handed hitting utility, Matt Beatty, who has been used at first base and in the corner outfield spot this season, uh, even in the lineup Wednesday night against a, against a lefty. Uh, 12 for 41 so far in the season, 15 RBIs. Uh, a good contact lefty bat with average power and a great team context. Seems like a no-brainer fantasy flyer over the near term. Uh, if he's available in your league, I would go get him. I was looking at this Matt Beatty guy, of course, uh, as soon as you hear the news like this, sad as it is, our first reaction is often to see how we can benefit from it. And in 2019, he was actually pretty decent, a 458 slugging percentage and a uh, 87% contact rate. So he had a nice 121 hard contact index, 21% better than league average at making hard contact, well, combining contact with uh, power. And... Uh, Given a little bit of playing time, uh, we're sort of upbeat about the possibilities for uh, Matt Beatty. We had him down for 216 at-bats, seven home runs. Uh, imagine that'll get updated to give him a little more playing time and perhaps a little more, uh, little more opportunity to put balls over fences. Yeah, maybe so. And what jumps out at the moment, of course, is the, is the context he's in in that Dodger lineup. 41 at-bats, 15 RBIs. That's a, that's a lot. Yes, it uh, is. And, so, so and, and he's not been putting the ball over the fence. So what that means is he's just in a good spot with guys on base and he's delivering. Yeah, just putting the ball into play, as we mentioned, uh, contact rate well over 80%, which means uh, anytime there's a guy on third, even if you ground out, you're going to get an RBI, which is something that doesn't happen if you strike out a lot. Right, absolutely. So this is somebody I think to, to take a hard look at. 
Uh, in Arizona, Christian Walker also goes to the injured list. Uh, Phil Hertz covered this story for playing time today. Uh, Christian Walker has an oblique problem. We know how difficult that can be for hitters because of the torsional rotation of their uh, of their core. How long is Christian Walker likely to be out, and who's the playing time benefit? Walker had just come off the IL with an oblique injury and now returns with the same injury. We've cut his projected playing time uh, one more time, down another 10%. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the uh, Diamondbacks take their time this time returning him to the active list uh, since he is they've just gone back with the same injury that he had before. So they called up uh, Andy Young. Andy Young has been shuffling between Arizona and the minors. He's had three homers and nine at-bats while up for the Diamondbacks. But in 2020, he hit 192 with one homer and 26 at-bats. Uh, so when he was called up at the start of 2021, we gave him a 7B rating. If he were to get some regular playing time, he might be worth watching. Uh, in deep leagues, uh, it looks like he may get some time uh, at the moment. And of course, he might get more time than we were originally expecting because uh, the original thought when Walker went back to the IL, when he went to the IL the first time, was that Asdrubal Cabrera would be filling in, but now Asdrubal Cabrera also going to the injured list. Yes, he got injured Thursday night. Uh, it appears there, there's uh, with no results of the MRI yet, but it looks like he could be out a significant amount of time. Uh, so Andy Young may see even more time than we're currently projecting for him. And uh, another National League first baseman. Uh, interestingly, all these guys are in the National League West. Uh, C.J. Crone of Colorado has gone on the IL as well. Yes, uh, we don't know. Uh, the problem is a back issue, a lower back strain. Uh, those things are often very mysterious, as those of us like me who have lower back problems know. We don't know how they're going to come and go. We don't know how much time uh, C.J. Crone is going to miss. We've already digged his playing time up before in advance of this absence. Uh, Connor Joe, one for six, and left-handed hitting Matt Adams, two for 15, will share the first base at bats. Although obviously not in the platoon since uh, Connor Joe, right-handed hitting Connor Joe was in the lineup versus right-handed pitchers uh, several times this week. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like any of these names are jumping out at me as guys I want to rush out and roster. I think that may be true. Uh, take a look at Connor Joe. He's been hitting very well this week. Uh, so I'm going to do some studying on him and find out whether there's more more there that we might want to look at. But uh, at the moment, of course, they're playing at home this weekend in, in Coors Field, and uh, all bets are off once they, they leave and head back to other ballparks. It hasn't all been bad news for first basemen. There's been bad news to fit practically everybody at every position in the league. Uh, let's go to the pitchers. Uh, first of all, I think the big news, obviously, Jacob deGrom going on the injured list with some right side tightness, they called it. Yeah, right side tightness, and I guess they're still trying to figure out exactly what that is. Uh, it sounds like he could miss just his next scheduled start, but until he actually uh, he missed one start already, so until he actually is back out on the mound, I think all Jacob DeGrom owners should be holding their breath uh, and probably need to do that, and uh, maybe even for a couple of games to make sure that he's completely back and, and well and, and ready to be Jacob DeGrom. I don't have Jacob DeGrom on any of my rosters, but if I did... Nick, I think I'd be tempted if the Mets activated him that I would activate him from my bench because I don't think they're going to be um, uncautious about when they decide to reactivate DeGrom and put him back out there. They're going to err on the side of caution, and I believe that I would be happy to put him out there on the mound any chance I could get. If the Mets think it's okay, why should I feel any different? Yeah, I think I agree. And DeGrom, too, is very cautious, I'm sure, as well. He's done this for a long time. He knows when he doesn't feel right. So I don't think he's going to be out there pitching if he doesn't feel right either. So 
I, I do think you're right. I think I would, if I, if I had him on my roster, I would activate him as soon as the Mets are ready to put him back out there. In St. Louis, Carlos Martinez has been struggling this year so far, and now his struggles continue. He's got a sore ankle, and he was placed on the 10-day IL as well. It's unclear, yes. It's unclear, not clear how long he will be out. So far, it's been a struggle for him uh, this season. He's uh, had a 5.06 XDRA, 30 BPV, and of special concern, he has only a strikeout percentage of 13%, a strikeout minus walks 5%. Uh, so right now we made only a minor reduction in, in projected innings, but uh, uh, it's hard to tell exactly what's going to happen right now. Keep an eye on that one. Uh, Johan Oivedo has been uh, activated. We told you earlier that he would likely be back with the Cardinals as soon as they needed another starter. And so here we are. So far, he's had mixed results, ERA of 4.61, XERA 3.98, uh, but a 104 BPV. Uh, walk rate of 7%, strikeout rate of 24%. So probably someone maybe to keep an eye on. In San Diego, uh, boy, this is scary news. I heard just on a on the crawl on a baseball game I was watching, Fernando Tatis goes back to the IL, and my heart sank because I do have uh, Tatis on one of my rosters. Turns out it's not an injury. They called it undisclosed, which usually means the COVID list, and I believe that's been confirmed that uh, he and Jurickson Profar and Jorge Mateo all undisclosed. This sounds like it's going to be one of those things where somebody's tested positive or been near somebody who tested positive and a domino effect where one guy gets the uh, finger pointed at him and everybody that he's been near gets the finger pointed at them as well. Uh, yeah, it sounds like, from what we're hearing now, it sounds like the, the latest word is that Tatis was the player who tested positive, uh, reportedly asymptomatic, uh, may have to wait 10 days before returning if he hasn't been vaccinated. So uh, we're, we're just waiting, I think, for more more word on that. Uh, both Profar and Mateo may return immediately, depending on their test results. No playing time changes here. We'd already downgraded Tatis because of his shoulder issues. And I believe Jock Thompson reported that Young Kim batting a crisp 190 through 63 at-bats started on Monday night at shortstop and probably will get a little bit of a playing time bump this week at Baseball HQ pending what we learn about Tatis. Yeah, I think that's it. Uh, uh, Kim is the one who's likely to benefit initially, but of course at this point he's not showing as much. Some of our most important columns at Baseball HQ, Nick, are the uh, batting buyer's guide, starting pitcher buyer's guides, and bullpen buyer's guide. And Doug Dennis has been covering the bullpens for low these many years and uh, does a great job keeping up with the bullpens, especially pointing out the relievers who have skills as opposed to just having the roles, and he does a great job assessing that on an ongoing basis. And he looked this week at a couple of teams, uh, and one of the teams he looked at was in his hometown, Cincinnati, where they have uh, what he calls a mess in their bullpen, and I think you have to agree he's probably right. Yeah, you know, just a, just, just a week ago, uh, Doug Dennis told us that Lucas Sims was likely to get the majority of the saves due to a 31% uh, strikeout minus walk ratio in April. And then in the week after that, things went south very fast. Uh, Sims now stands with a 4.20 XERA, 66 BPV. Uh, and the question is, is what now? Um, Sims collapsed very quickly over three outings. A disastrous outing on April 22nd that looked like an anomaly. And then consecutive poor outings on April 30th, May 2nd, May 5th. Uh, while TJ Antone has posted a 2.73 XERA and 8 of 10 clean appearances and has created a loss of trust in Sims. Um, 
Sims, Doolittle, Garrett, all at or below, at or below half being appearances at this point. Uh, they brought up some new folks. Reinforcements have arrived. Heath Embry, uh, nice of five of five clean appearances so far. Ryan Hendricks uh, also is doing well. Hendricks is pitching at high leverage so far, 1.82 leverage index. Hembry uh, is right there with him. Uh, and Garrett with Garrett and Antoine at high leverage index. So you want to watch the red usage to see what might change. If Hembry uh, or Hendricks get into setup, that higher usage reliever might be a decent flyer. Sims and Garrett right now, both can can fix things, but Garrett will have to string together a bunch of zeros for a while before the team trusts him in a in a high leverage situation. There is talent here. If you roster Antone as the last man standing, just understand he's too valuable in multiple inning stints to make into a traditional closer. He'll get some chances when it lines up, but he's going to be this is going to be a dreaded committee perhaps for a while. Could include Sims, Hendricks, Doolittle, as well as Antone until somebody finds success to get the ninth on a regular basis. Uh, for now, speculation is unlikely to be rewarded unless you guess just right. Antone is the one guy who can be expected to continue to get multiple inning chances and a handful of saves when it comes to that usage. Uh, after Doug wrote this column, uh, it was actually Sims who got a multiple inning shot with uh, an eighth and a ninth uh, earlier this week and got four strikeouts and a clean inning. So uh, it, it's it's going to be a bit of a, a, a uh, fluid situation, I think, until they discover who can actually produce on a consistent basis. In that same column, Doug also looked at the bullpen situation in Colorado, where closer Daniel Bard, who's a great story coming back from all that time away from the game, and uh, looked like he was succeeding pretty well, but uh, of late, not so much. At the moment, only 4 of 11 clean appearances, a 5.13 XCRA, a 60 BPV. Um, so far, there hasn't been any change, but you can sure see it coming. Michael Givens is pitching in the highest leverage and has had the best results. 8 of 12 clean appearances, a 3.80 XERA, 126 BPV. Clearly outpitching Bard and anyone else in the Rockies pen. If you want to go ahead and speculate on a lesser closer you have an, and have an available slot, you could do a lot worse than Givens. Uh, the last safe chance went to Bard anyway, so the bet is that Bard continues to stumble and the team is forced to make a change to Givens. That's pretty straightforward. Yeah, it's too bad, too. It's an interesting story, the Daniel Bard story. And, uh, of course, there are a lot of people, I imagine, who rostered Michael Givens way back in the day, thinking that uh, the Daniel Bard story might end up this way. And sure enough, it looks like it is. But have you noticed over his career, Michael Givens has often been the guy with the best skills in a bullpen and not the closer? Right. That, that, seems, that seems to have been, have been the case. Uh, not, not always sure why that happens. Uh, Closing is a is a we as we've learned at Baseball HQ a different situation, and some guys have the um, uh, the the mental wherewithal for that. Some do not. Uh, not saying that Givens doesn't, but uh, frequently he has simply not gotten opportunities in in the situation where he has the highest skills. Yeah, I was looking at his track record, and it's interesting that. In years when he's had a number of saves, 2018-19 in Baltimore, he also had relatively high ERAs, although his expected ERA numbers were a little bit better. But when he was in that setup role, his ERAs were considerably lower, like in one year, uh, 180, then in 275, 138, these kind of levels. But in those two years when he was getting the ball in that ninth inning situation, 399, 457, and then briefly in 2020, 675. And he uh, finished a couple of games, but 
you know, uh, we used to say a long time ago, and Doug Dennis will remember this, and I'm sure you do as well, we had the formula for uh, closers that included something we called guile. And uh, eventually, I think we dropped that because it was so indistinct and amorphous and not really statistically based. But what it had to do with was mental makeup or the uh, attitude that a guy went out there with in the ninth inning. And uh, as I said, we dropped it. But sometimes you look at a record like this and you think maybe there's something to it. It's uh, some people react differently to pressure than others. Right. Very definitely. And you look at you look at Gibbons especially and think, well, you know, maybe this kind of pressure is not not the best for him. And he's better off uh, in the eighth when there's less seems like there's less pressure on the line. So. Hard to tell, but right now, if you're going to speculate in the Colorado pen, Gibbons would, I think, be the guy to look at. I think that's right, but uh, don't expect that you're going to necessarily win that particular game because A, he might not get the role, B, he might get the role and struggle in it. Uh, I think another guy to look at in the in the situation might be Robert Stevenson, who has a pretty good uh, leverage index and usage, but he's struggled in the past as well. That's a possibility. And the other thing to keep in mind with any Colorado closer is half the games are being pitched in Coors Field. And so uh, that's another thing that makes me kind of stay away from Colorado closers. Or Colorado pitching in general. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out this week. We'll talk to you again in seven days' time. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and columnist Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here, PD. Happy middle of May. Let's start in Seattle. Speaking of happy occasions, uh, after much controversy, I guess we could say, early in the season and much uh, wringing of hands waiting, uh, Jared Kalanick has finally arrived. The Mariners called him up to start on Thursday night of this week. Uh, Rod Trusdell covered the story for playing time today. How does Kalanick's arrival play out in the Pacific Northwest? Well, first of all, I had this image of like Paul Revere riding through the streets of Seattle, ringing a bell like, Kalanick is coming, Kalanick is coming. (laughs) Please come to the ballpark. Um, But yeah, big news, obviously. Uh, We gave Kelnick a 20% bump in playing time uh, from what we were already projecting, which was 50%. So he nets out to being a uh, 70% playing time allocation for for the rest of the year. Uh, There's no official word yet, but we surmise that Taylor Trammell will be the playing time loser, at least for the near term. Uh, So we've deducted 20% from his playing time and figuring that the outfield will look like uh, Lewis and Kelnick and Hanniger. Uh, later in the season, uh, depending on how the race goes for the Mariners, I suppose it's possible that Hanniger ends up on the trading block. But for now, Trammell, Trammell looks like the loser, and the Kelnick show starts uh, this weekend. Rod Trusdell says that we expect Kelnick to be an immediate contributor in power and speed, but batting average might lag. Yeah, that's, you know, there's always a, bu- a bunch of uncertainty here. Some guys hit the ground running more than others, and as much as we try to predict who's in what category, it's a little tough to say. And then you throw in all of the you know, vagaries of the alternate site and at what Kelnick's been doing there for the last, you know, both last summer and this year, and the fact that he's got all of a week of AAA experience. Uh, you know, there's a wide range of outcomes here, uh, but you know, I, I think we've all seen the viral the viral tweets and YouTube videos of the power that we, we think the power is going to be there pretty quickly. I have seen a lot of those things, of course, uh, and and I'm sure we're going to see plenty more as he goes through. But one of the things about prospect video 
that uh, I always take with a grain of salt is they don't they don't show the strikeouts and they don't show right. the weak contact. Right? It's just look at this. He hit it 560 feet, and you know. Of course, we're going to see that every once in a while, practically from everybody. I mean, Pete Orr hit a home run once, uh, a Canadian kid who totally. had 100 batting average kind of for his career. But that doesn't mean, uh, don't fall for it, is what I'm saying to our listeners, just because you see a guy hit a home run once in a while. Uh, that said, I think Jared Kalanick is a genuine talent, and I think that the power is going to play pretty early. Yeah, you know, it's funny because in terms of hype for the arrival and what the uh, what the Twitter machine and the viral videos were doing for Kelnick here, it's I, I think it's been the most impactful campaign of you know social media since uh, probably Vlad Jr. But it's you know but that's probably you know relevant to this discussion that you know we all saw the grainy videos of Vlad mashing baseballs in AAA and ram and rampaging his way around the uh, the International League. But you know it's and while Vlad seems like he's taking off this year, it took a little while, right? He didn't just parachute into Toronto and start doing that at least not with regularity. So that's the that's the cautionary tale here, right? Yeah, it's exactly the same story. If you watched Vlad Jr. for any length of time, we saw him in uh, at first pitch Arizona in the Fall mm-hmm. Stars game, and he hit maybe the hardest ball, one of the hardest balls I've ever seen hit live in a baseball game. It only went about eight feet high, and it bounced off the, it hit the left field fence on the fly with yep. a resounding crash, like a car had hit it or something like that, and you think, wow, this guy can hit. But guess what? Hitting in the Fall Star game is quite a long stretch from hitting against Garrett Cole. Right, and as you said, there's no Twitter videos of the thousands of ground balls that were hit in between those that, that laser line drive, right? Right, exactly right. Uh, in Tampa, there have been some significant changes, Ray. The Rays have uh, DFA'd Yoshitomo Tsutsugo. Chris Olson reporting that the Rays are going to see if they can get some trade offers on Tsutsugo. Why would they? I, we kind of predicted this last week when we were uh, previewing uh, G-Man Choi re- returning and suggesting that Sutsuga would be the uh, odd man out on the roster. And sure, I mean, they can go looking for a trade. I don't know what they're asking for in return. Maybe it's, you know, frequent flyer miles. <laughs> yeah, fab budget. Uh... Yeah, exactly. Throw me $5 of fab. <laughs> <laughs> and you can have them, yeah, take them off my hands. In fantasy leagues, I think the, the story here is that you're not going to get a lot of value out of Tsutsugo, and good luck to you for trying. Uh, I've read that he intends to decline the opportunity to go play in AAA or wherever they want to send him and is going to ask for his release and thinks he can land himself somewhere better. If there's no cost attached to him moving somewhere else, I still think it's cloud cuckoo. I mean, and you, you, sure, you can't rule out that he's going to end up you know, playing left field in Pittsburgh in two weeks or something like that, I suppose. But uh, you know, maybe he wants to you know, see if different coaching or different philosophy or whatever will unlock whatever has been not unlocked in his uh, year and a half or whatever it's been in Tampa. We did mention G-Man Choi last week, but we also have outfielder Kevin Kiermeyer sent to the IL with a sprained wrist, so several moving parts here. How do Chris Olson and you see this all shaking out in the end? Yeah, this gets a little messy. So Sutsugo's out, Kiermeyer's out. Uh, the initial call-up was... Uh, Kevin Padlow, but that appears to be temporary. Uh, Padlow jumped into the starting lineup. He may have a role for a little while, uh, maybe maybe mixing third base with Joey Wendell. But Mike Brousseau is also in that mix, and Brousseau, Brousseau moves off of first when Joy comes back, so that infield gets a little logjam pretty quickly. Uh, if Padlow does get any at-bats, there's a 
a, a mild bit of intrigue there. Our daily call-up report tagged him as having a, a this was a, a double sort of a double qualified quote that I really enjoyed a quote surprising amount of sneaky upside. So it's <laughs> it's not just sneaky or surprising; it's both. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we should be surprised if he sneaks up on us, right? He's wearing like exactly. deep sea diving. We, boots we, we or warned you not to get snuck up on. And you're still surprised. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, he, he, yeah, but this might also be a case of the Rays just trying to ride the hot hand for a couple of days or a week. I, he had a Padlo had already hit four home runs and six AAA games. So uh, the, the Rays' philosophy here might be summed up with uh, you know get them while they're hot. <laughs> In Texas, the Rangers placed right-hander Kohei Arihara to the IL and recalled outfielder Eli White, so there's no new pitcher arriving immediately. Rod Trusdell covers the Rangers for playing time today. What happens in the Texas pitching situation with Arihara on the IL? Yeah, I should I should start by talking about Arihara a little bit. Um, it, it's sort of an interesting situation, just that um, he was on my radar a little bit in the offseason, I grabbed him in some draft and hold situations really late where you're trying to fill out starting pitching depth. And he was pretty good for, I think it was his first two starts and then went completely off the rails. And now they've uh, put him on the DL. But I, uh, supposedly the problem is a, you know, a callus slash blister on his hand that is keeping him, uh, you know, from gripping the ball correctly. So assuming that, you know, if, if you're in a league that doesn't have DL spots and, you know, it, it, he's on the DL and he was terrible before he went on the DL, so he's going to get dropped in a lot of formats. But, you know, if, if they actually get that straightened out, I, I I might grab him um, if you're looking for that starting pitching depth on the way back because those those first couple of starts were pretty decent. How about John King? Yeah, John John King is the guy that uh, Rogers Dell, when he wrote this up, kind of highlighted as uh, noteworthy on the staff. Not that he's net jumping into the rotation in the Arihara spot or anything, but just that uh, you know he's one guy who was under projected a little bit, and he got a bit of an innings bump as Rod just sort of rounded off all of the uh, all of the numbers on the Rangers staff here. King's been really good in middle relief, and, you know, twelve strikeouts to two walks in seventeen innings so far. And, you know, he's not a hard thrower, not getting a ton of swing and miss, but he's got a nearly 70% ground ball rate. And, you know, Ian Kennedy has a firm grip on that closer role, and we don't think that's going to change by performance reasons anytime soon. But, you know, if we're talking about who is on the bridge in front of Kennedy, you know, King is, you know, moving there with with Joey Rodriguez here. So, uh, you know, good job by Rod to just sort of put him on the radar because this is one I had not noticed yet myself. In Boston, that's your town, Ray. Uh, they placed Kike Hernandez on the IL. He's got a hamstring injury. Christian Arroyo goes to the IL. He's got a hand injury. And they recalled Michael Chavis, who's on my Tout American League team and as a result is struggling in his early going. And so is uh, slugging strikeout machine Bobby Dahlbeck. I think he had a 10-game stretch going uh, one for 34 with 13 strikeouts and no walks, making Rowdy Tellez look like an all-star in that little streak. Uh, Looks like he might be expanding his strike zone out of desperation to do something offensively. Chris Olson covers the Sox for playing time today and reports on the Sox in his playing time tomorrow coverage of the American League East. And he says the next name you see might be Danny Santana, blast from the past. 
Yeah, boy, they're getting to the point where they have to try something. I was actually at the Red Sox game on Wednesday night, and uh, you know the, the core of the Sox lineup with you know Verdugo, Bogarts, Devers, and JD Martinez is really quite good. And the other five spots in the lineup are really just bleak right now. You know, with uh, you know one of the notable things from lineup construction point of view is that with Kike Hernandez out, uh, Kike had been handling the leadoff spot, so Marwin Gonzalez has jumped up there and is getting uh, time at both at second base and at the leadoff spot, which is a nice boon for his short-term value. Uh, but boy, that bottom of the lineup, you mentioned Dahlbeck struggles. Uh, Hunter Renfro, I mean, comparatively speaking, looks like he's figuring it out. And by that, I mean, he's you know putting the bat on the ball more than half the time. Uh, but, you know, Chavis is really struggling. Uh, Franchi Cordero is utterly lost. And they, you know, the, the, the outfield is so bad with Kike out and with Gonzalez having to play second base and, you know, Kike and Marwin were both spending a good amount of time in the outfield because Arroyo was actually hitting pre- pretty decently in second base. So you take away both Kike and Arroyo, Marwin's got to go to second base. And now, you know, ideally Redfro and Cordero are a platoon, but instead you're playing both of them every night, which is, and Chavis is striking out, Dahlbeck striking out all over the place. Newsflash, Danny Santana plays all of these positions. So there are about, you know, he can play first, he can play second, he can play the corner outfields. There there are about four places where he might be an upgrade right now. So I wouldn't be surprised if as soon as, uh, you know, next week or they uh, they plug him in for Franchi or for Dahlbeck or somebody and get him on the roster and try something different because six, seven, eight, nine in the Red Sox lineup right now are basically automatic outs. I was also looking defensively at the Red Sox. I was watching a game the other night, and you said Franchi Cordero looks lost. I presume you meant at the plate. Uh, he looked much more lost <laughs> in the outfield. He was lost in all, the wrong in all capacities. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. It was really, really quite painful to watch. He was, like, stumbling and bumbling around out there like a blind man, you know, and it was, uh, it was sad to watch. And, of course, they've got the difficulty that if they want him to DH, then they have to put J.D. Martinez who's not going to make anybody forget Carl Yastrzemski either in left field. So the the, uh, roster construction aspect of this seems to have been a little bit mishandled possibly because they put a lot of stock in the ability of Kike to fill in around the the field, Marwin to fill in around the field, and now you got one of them hurt and Marwin's not hitting or not hitting very well. Yeah, and if you look, it's actually a good point for J.D. Martinez owners. I assume most Martinez owners are tracking this themselves, but in case they aren't, you're right. Martinez, is he's up to six or seven games in the outfield already. So if you have him at utility only and you're in a 10-game qualification league, he's going to get there probably before the end of May because, like you say, the outfield production has been so bad that they, you know with some frequency once a week or so, Alex Cora is throwing up his hands and saying, J.D., go get the glove and we'll, you know, Basically, what's happening is the core of the lineup is so, um, you know, is is so vital that they can't take Bogarts or Devers out of the lineup. So what he's doing every now and then is letting one of those two DH and send JD out to the outfield. These kind of situations, Ray, often make us look at the idea of maybe some prospects finding a way into a, into a decent situation there in Boston, and they have a couple of guys who have outfield and or second base chops in Jeter Downs and Jaron Duran. Uh, what are we going to think about when we start looking at these guys possibly as call-ups? Yeah, if you know, we're obviously a week or 10 days into the minor league season here, uh, but the watch is on for Duran. 
you know, if he has a good start to the season down in AAA, if he if he hits in the first month or whatever and shows that you know a pretty strong spring training that he had is carrying over, you know, there that's going to amp up the pressure to you know to get him up to uh, Boston as well, especially if the uh, if the Franchi Cordero struggles continue on both sides of the ball because they could they could just flat release Franchi and get Duran up here and that would probably be an upgrade. It's just, I think I think it's really just a question of wanting Duran to get some reps in the minors before they pull that lever. I think that I've jeetered downs on my tout team as well. And uh, I was watching him and Duran went, I think, 0 for 21 with 10 strikeouts in the first three games. But lately they've been hitting. Uh, Duran went 3 for 4 on Friday, had three hits Saturday. And just the other night in their home opener, I think he had two more home runs. So he certainly doesn't seem overmatched at AAA. So the question is, can he make it up? And you didn't mention Jeter Downs, who's got, he's a shortstop by trade, but could play second. Is there any yeah, I mean, he's, he slots in, he slots in long term at second now. With you know, as, as long as Bogart's endeavors are handling the left side of the infield, you know. But my impression is that he's a little bit further away. But you know, as, as you say, if he hits in the minors, uh, you know, he could he could force the matter pretty quickly because Barwin and Kiki can easily move around to the outfield, and there's nothing really blocking him long term at second base when he demonstrates he's ready to handle that. Yeah, Downs hit pretty well over the weekend as well. Uh, two for four with a double on Friday, a couple of hits and a walk on Sunday, but the golden sombrero in between on Saturday, 0 for 4 with 4Ks. Uh, you know, that uh, opening series was against Buffalo, which sounds like it would be bad enough, but they actually played the games in Trenton, New Jersey. And I imagine... Oh, because the, <laughs> they're getting Buffalo ready for uh, right. for the Jays to come in a couple of weeks, right? So can you imagine what they said to the guys in the clubhouse? Uh, I know you guys probably weren't looking forward to a trip to Buffalo, so I got good news <laughs> and bad news. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to Buffalo. Yay, we're going to Trenton. Uh... <laughs> what could possibly be worse than starting your year in Buffalo, right? Uh, news from the rotation in a solidly competitive Oakland club, Ray. Uh, Mike Fires, they've just demoted him from the rotation. He's still on the roster. Lazardo was already out. Uh, the Athletics activated catcher Armies Garcia from the injured list, and they sent down Austin Allen, a catcher, and right-hander Jordan Weems to AAA. They called up prospect James Capriellian, and he started on Wednesday night in Boston under the watchful eye of our very own Ray Murphy, doing a little prospect yeah, right. scouting. I what did you see? It's one one of the fantastic uh, side benefits of uh, you know attendance restrictions and that sort of thing. Uh, I was able to scoop up you know literal front row seats that were uh, you know normally locked up by season ticket holders, but uh, you know they happened to you know what happened in Massachusetts was they raised the ballpark capacities from twelve percent to twenty five percent, and you know that you sort of dub doubled the ticket availability. And I went on, you know, three minutes after they dropped those tickets in the, uh, the virtual box office and gobbled up some front row seats to uh, celebrate a friend of mine's college graduation. And we, uh, we took in Caprillion from, uh, you know, next to the Sox dugout last night. Uh, it, it was funny. He had a, uh, in a very rough first inning, loaded the bases with nobody out on a double and a couple of walks and worked his way out of it with only one run allowed. And then really, uh, settled down and kind of breezed through the second, third, and fourth. Uh, I, I think as much credit for that goes to Caprillion settling down as much as it does what we were just talking about with the Red Sox lineup from uh, you know spots five through nine being just absolutely dreadful. Um, so you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not anointing James Caprillion the, the new, uh, the next, uh, <laughs> you know, the next uh, Dennis Eckersley or uh, you know Dave Stewart circa 1988 or anything for for A's references. But uh, you know, he settled down and you know ended up uh, he got a big strikeout with uh, 
I think the bases loaded again to get out of the fifth, and that was the end of his outing. Uh, he threw 90-something pitches in five innings and only allowed them one run and got his first major league win. You know, he snapped off a couple of good sliders that you could even see. Uh, you know, one, one nice thing about sitting right by the Sox dugout is I got the full effect of the guys muttering on their way back after striking out. You know, that was, so that was good. You know, very clearly caught Xander Bogarts just shaking his head after striking out uh, in the first inning. But, um, yeah, you know, uh, Luzardo's going to be out for a little while longer. And as you said, we're not totally clear what's going on with fires, but you know, Caprillion, I think, did, did enough there to earn another start or a couple of starts. So we will see uh, how long he hangs around. And we should make it clear, uh, James Caprellian, James Catfish Caprellian has a good ring to it, doesn't it? I love it. Yeah. He's 27 years old, so he's not exactly a bright, young, shiny prospect. He's been around a while. Yeah, he has. And I, you know what's really delayed him has been the injury bug. I believe, if I remember correctly, he was drafted by the Yankees. You know, missed a ton of time. And I was actually trying to remember this during the game last night. I did not get a chance to look it up before... Uh, I came on with you, but I think he went to the A's in the Sunday Gray deal. So that um, until he got to Oakland, but you know, has really struggled to stay on the mound. And you know, I believe you used to be, uh, you know, flamethrower before numerous injuries went through. So he, he was, you know, not blowing anybody away last night at you know a very pedestrian for this day and age, 92, 93 with a you know low to mid eighties slider. But uh, you know, he was uh, he was effective against. Uh, Franchi Cordero and Bobby Dahlbeck and, <laughs> and those guys. Drafted by Seattle, didn't sign. Uh, drafted by New York, did sign. Got traded, as you mentioned, to Oakland. And there he is now. Again, not a top prospect and not overpowering stuff, but he's. it's a good team. And yeah, it's a, absolutely. And team context well matters. It's, yep. That's a good, good bullpen behind him. He can be... Uh, you know, four or five innings and get out. I mean, look at what they did last last night. It was five from him, two innings from Burt Smith, Trevino, Diekman, go home with the win. And yep. they can, th- th- that, that formula works. It does work, and you don't have to be Jim Catfish Hunter to make that work in a fantasy setting, although it would be nice if he, you could be Jim Catfish Hunter in a, in a fantasy setting. Uh, let's wrap up, Ray, with a look at this week's speculator column, your old job. Uh, Ryan Bloomfield this week invented a new stat called change score and then used it to look at pitching all the way across the game to identify pitchers with uh, interesting angles. Uh, what is change score, according to Ryan? Yeah, this was super quick and elegant from Ryan. I just love the the clarity he brings to some of these things. What he did was he basically took pitch mix changes, which we talk about a lot of this guy added a slider. This guy's throwing his curveball less, you know, those kind of changes to a pitcher's offering that we see so much of these days as pitchers are almost constantly, you know, reinventing themselves and using video and spin rate and grip changes and all these things to, you know, seek out, you know, the latest edges in effectiveness. And Ryan kind of just turned this into a number by saying, like, if you get, if you're throwing 20% less sliders and 20% more curveballs this year, your chain score is 40. And you could do that across the entire pitch mix and, you know, kind of put a, 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 a crude but effective numerical ranking on how much pitchers are doing things differently than they did last year. And he went through, and what I loved about this was he tagged guys as both sort of good and bad, or, you know, we're optimistic about it, we're not as optimistic about it. It wasn't all, you know, there was a lot of uh, rainbows and unicorns here, but it wasn't all rainbows and unicorns. Um, you know, Aaron Savali from Cleveland is one that jumped out as where Ryan was not optimistic about the changes. Um, first of all, he, th- he wasn't sure that, um, 
you know, he actually did Savali has actually changed his offerings. One of the things you run into with these stat cast and pitch tracking tools is sometimes it's a classification thing where they try to identify pitches by their profile and, you know, they, and, and they could get recategorized like Savali's change up from 2020 is being characterized as a split change in 2021. But is that really a different pitch? Maybe not. Yeah. Um, but he's throwing more four seamers and sinkers too. But, you know, overall, you know, he, he he got a good change number in Ryan's metric here, but it looks it still looks like that he's been more fortunate than anything with his good start. He's got a twenty three percent hit rate, a seventy seven percent strand rate, um, you know, and, a, and an XERA that's still a, a takeover four. So not wildly optimistic about the outlook there, even though he rated pretty well in this metric. I thought it was interesting that he pointed that out because sometimes when we develop one of these new metrics and uh, I've done it at Baseball HQ and you've done it at Baseball HQ and you you tend to think of it as the key to everything that that you've ever wondered about Uh, and it turns out, as uh, Ryan rightly pointed out with Aaron Savali, yes, he had this big change score, a lot less of one, a lot more of the other, as you mentioned, but maybe that isn't the cause of the good performance of ERA under three. Everybody's real excited about it, but, and, and it's easy to form a narrative out of this new thing that you've discovered. But uh, to his credit, Ryan said, I've, I found this big change. It's associated with a guy who's had a, an improvement or has had a really good start, but I don't think my metric is related to the good start. Right. It's a, it's a huge analytic trap that Ryan, you know, as you say, did well to not fall into because if, like you say, Patrick, we've, we've both done this. And, you know, when you, if you develop a new metric and you burps out a list of players, right. And you look at the list and like, these mostly look like good players. It looks like this is capturing something relevant. Right. right. And then you, the first kind of the second thing you look at is, okay, who are the guys who I don't actually know who are good, who are scoring on this metric? These, you know, I, these are guys I'm going to be interested in. Right. And Savali is one of those, but you know, Ryan correctly, you know, sort of identifies him as the trap here not the, uh, you know, not, not the hidden gem. Uh, but there were a couple of other, uh, other guys who are legit hidden, hidden gems here. Um, you know, uh, he had a much, he had much more positive things to say about Dane Dunning, who, if you remember, remember went from the White Sox to Texas this winter in the Lance Lynn deal, um, he not only changed teams, but has changed pitch mix as well, which I always like to see when those two things happen concurrently, because you wonder if the scouts from the Rangers identified Dunning because they knew there were some things they wanted to do for do with him or could do with him, and that's why they targeted him in the trade. Um He's kind of mon- more gone to a ground ball sinker mix r- without getting as many uh, chasing as many strikeouts, but he's using he's using a sinker slider mix, and the sinker's getting the ground balls, the slider's getting a ton of swing and miss, so this swinging strike rate is actually staying up, and this concurs with uh, some notes that Chris Blessing had on Dunning last year, who noted that you know when Chris saw him. I think he was actually video scouting. I don't think he saw him in person, but he saw both a slider and a curveball as Dunning's off-speed offerings and thought that the slider had much more potential. So it seems like the the Rangers saw the same thing, zeroed in on the slider, had him shelve the curveball, and that seems to be some of the reason for Dunning's good start, which, which looks pretty sustainable if they have him keep doing what he's doing. And to be clear, when Ryan broke it down, he has some uh, colored charts here, which make it really easy to see these changes in the pitch mix. It wasn't that he, uh, that uh, Dunning increased the use of the slider particularly. The big increase was in, in the sinker, 
but also there was a big decrease in the curveball, which is a, a right. weak pitch. Shelve the bad curveball, and uh, you know the slider and the sinker are your kind of peanut butter and jelly, right? Those always go well together. And you know, using more slide, you know, more, using more sinker give, probably gives the slider more contrast and effectiveness there. And you know, and we, as we say so often, the best that you know sometimes the best thing a pitcher can do is stop throwing their worst pitch, which in this case was the curveball. And it seemed to have taken a major league baseball pitching. Uh, coaches and and teams to f- figure that out. You know, just to, remember it wasn't that long ago where everybody was told throw your fastball most of the time because you needed yep. to set up your other pitches. And finally, somebody looked at it and said, "Yeah, but when I throw those other pitches, or when this guy throws those other pitches, he gets hit. <laughs> and when he throws that pitch, he doesn't get hit." You know, do, it do reminds more of me of my father in law, who you know, you, my, my my wife and her sisters always say that you know when they when they were kids, they would they would say to their father. You know, Dad, it hurts when I do this. Well, then don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, uh, up in Boston, uh, back to your hometown again, Ray, uh, Nathan Eovaldi made Ryan Bloomfield's list of these uh, pitch score change metric leaders. Uh, What did he find about Nate Eovaldi? Yeah, some good news here as well. Uh, You know, he's he's throwing a slider more. That uh, and it seems to have not only that, but made some command gains. Uh, you know, he's like a five pitch guy, so you know he's always kind of one of these uh, you know mechanics on the mound, or you know almost you know making things up as he goes. Uh, you know, he's got a bunch of ways he can attack hitters. Uh, and but the the slider seems like a real weapon that has sort of rounded out his entire pitch mix. He's uh, plays off the fastball really well. He's throwing and, and to your point, he's throwing a fastball a little less than he has in the past. So. Uh, you know, that slider plays really well. But, you know, as Ryan correctly points out in his very first sentence with Ivaldi, you know, health has always been the issue here. So he's on a run of effectiveness right now. But I think even, you know, every bit as surprising as the run of effectiveness, you know, we always knew the stuff was there. But even the real surprising aspect is, you know, every start he stays in the rotation at this point seems like a bonus. Maybe that's just my single Boston take. But, uh, you know, he's been he, he's had such a bad run of durability for so long now that, uh, you know, you you ride this while it's uh, while it's go, while he's going well. But you sort of always expect it to come uh, crashing to a halt with the DL stint at any time. And. Ryan Bloomfield does point out that if you're interested in these pitch mix studies and want to really get into depth, Baseball HQ has a relatively new column on the site called the Arsenal Report. Tanner Smith looks at pitchers in much greater depth than even Ryan has done here, and it's a really good new addition to the site. Yeah, right. Uh, Tanner's done a great job with that. Ryan called it out a couple of times here. And, you know, Tanner has done that article, uh, I think, three or four times now since uh, February. He was tracking a couple of guys through spring training, checked in on a couple of guys early in the season in April. You know, he posts video to show you, you know, here's what this pitch looked like last year. Here's what it looks like now. Here's somebody flailing at that. And, you know, it's, uh, it's really good if you want to especially if you want to not just uh, know that the guy is doing different, but doing something different, but get eyes on it with the, uh, the interspersed video. Tanner does a great job with that. And he, uh, you know, that's definitely something we're going to uh, stick with as long as uh, Tanner can find subjects to write about. And given, as we've kind of said at the top of the segment, given how, how, how often pitchers are, you know, sort of reinventing themselves these days, I don't think Tanner's going to run out of subject matter anytime soon. All right, Ray, I don't think we're going to run out of subject matter anytime soon either. Uh, Thanks very much for doing this, and we'll catch up with you again next week. Sounds great. Thanks, Peter. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com.
Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Chris Blessing from the scouting team at BaseballHQ.com. He'll be coming to the plate in just a second. But before we roll ahead, I wanted to let you know about our next show, another Friday full edition featuring a special guest interview with the wise guy of fantasy baseball. Yes, Gene McCaffrey is back from The Athletic, as well as all the usual great stuff, National League and American League player news, Rob Gordon's minor league minute, Alex Becky's frequent flyer, and my extra innings comment. That's next Friday here on Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Chris Blessing from the scouting team at BaseballHQ.com. Chris, uh, I worked with a guy whose father played in the NHL and who later became a scout for the Edmonton Oilers in the Gretzky-Messier era. So he told me once that the best seat in the house at a hockey game for scouts is relatively high up in the corner of the rink. And his rationale was you can see the players in two dimensions, coming towards you and going away, but also going across from side to side. And you want to be able to see how they handle themselves on skates in that way. When you're going to the uh, uh, a minor league ballpark to scout a hitter or a pitcher, is there a different best seat in the house? Where do you like to sit based on who you're looking for? Well, um, there's really kind of three seats in the house. Uh, if that makes sense. Uh, uh, number one is right behind home plate, as close as you can get to right behind home plate. Uh, and you want to be elevated a little. If you notice on television broadcasts, it's not just because they want to fill seats that the scouts aren't seen in the, in the, in the shot um, behind home plate. You want to be a lot higher than that. You want to be able to be able to see the field. You want to be able to see the pitcher without uh, any obstruction from the hitter. Um, you want to be able to see the hitter clearly without obstruction from the catcher. Um, uh, like I'll only go to the first level or the first row to get good video. That's all I would do. I, I will, you know, uh, so you can see it. And, and that's the kind that's the, some of the video that I've posted on H on baseball HQ on my eyes, have it articles and stuff. Then the other two places, actually the really four other places, uh, is uh the first one is a open shot of the of the hitter depending on either side so that's uh that's two other places uh and again you want some elevation on that you don't want to be right on it unfortunately like doing prep doing high school stuff you're on the same level so like you can't really help that but you want to be able to see uh the swing mechanics from the side and then the last place is the same thing for pitchers you want to get their open side as well and what you're looking for is you're looking for symmetry, how they're how they're front and back or from front and back. I, I mean, up and down. Uh, their upper half and the lower half are working together. You want to see that kind of stuff. So like, there's not one seat, but if you can't move anywhere, you'd rather be behind home plate. End up fairly high. I know every year when we were used to be able to go to first pitch Arizona, we went out to the games every day, and you'd always see the scouts gathered up probably 18, 20, 25 rows up from the field, but as close as they could to be right on that diagonal, right on that straight line yeah. from second to, to the mound to the plate. And pro scouts are a little different. Pro scouts don't seem to move as much. Um, I, I have one one or two contacts that will go down down the line, but most of them stay just behind home plate. They want to be behind home plate, but for the preps and for the colleges, those scouts are going to be walking around. They're going to go to the, uh, you know, to get the open faces to the various things. 
um, you know, there's a lot more video taking in that in that realm because there's no video set up. So uh, they want to get open open face shots on the pitcher. Some guys like to get close the the other side to see their backside, but I've never really been a, a proponent of that. Uh, I feel like you could just see that from behind home plate, whether a guy's bailing or not. In your live scouting experience and ignoring for now how the player did later in the majors, who are the best two or three minor league hitters you can ever remember seeing and just getting excited about the prospect of this prospect? Well, I, I got to uh, I got to see Ronald Acuna very, very young in his career. And actually, it's kind of funny. Um, I had a scout tell me about him. And he's like, there's this kid. He's very, very raw, um, but he hits the ball hard. Every, every time he makes contact, he hits the ball hard. Uh, and, like, he could be a five-tool dude. Like, okay, cool. Um, and I kind of filed that back, but I was actually there to see Austin Riley, who's his third base, the third baseman now of the uh, Braves. Um, and here's this Acuna kid who was so much better. Uh, so he's definitely on that list. I would say that uh, oh, Juan Soto. Um, seeing Juan Soto, I saw him before, um, um, opening day, the year that he got called up. He was in Class A. He faced a Braves pitcher who will make his major league debut this year named Kyle Muller uh, and took a, I think it was a 1-1 fastball on the outer half of the plate and went the opposite way, and it was a left-handed batter. It's something I just never had seen from a lefty in Class A before. Like, it, it was a very, it was a very eye-opening experience. And I would say another hitter that kind of, kind of, I, I don't know if it was necessarily I think it was the spectacle of the guy was Yasiel Puig. Um, uh, Puig had his holes that never got resolved when he got to the major leagues. Uh, but like he was, he was a fun guy to watch. Um, and like, I always remember him hitting how hard he hit the ball at that level um, compared to other dudes. How about on the pitching side, who are the best uh, young pitchers you saw in the minor leagues? That is that is actually really really hard um, because most of those guys didn't really verify as well as they did in the major leagues. I really like I said uh, Chris Paddock was a surprise, but I wouldn't put him in the top five. I saw a really dominating performance. I think it was like five innings and no hit ball, uh, but like I wouldn't put him in that class because I kind of never put him in the upper echelon of starters. Uh, so like he would not be there. I would say uh, seeing Sixto Sanchez, who's still a prospect. Uh, I mean that that was an experience because I got to see him. I got a really good look against uh, White Sox prospects like uh, Nick Madrigal and Luis uh, Robert. Uh, so I got like a premium look at him, and like he, uh, you know, everybody knows that Madrigal uh, is this contact god. He, he, you know, especially nowadays when nobody can make contact. This guy's making contact at a 95% rate. And uh, uh, the swings that he took to make contact off a of six, though, were some of the worst swings I've ever seen a prospect, a, a prospect with a name ever take. And the fact that, like, you never saw that against other guys. You just knew that, okay, here's this kid that's, uh, that could be exceptional. Uh, so he's definitely on that list. I would also throw... Um, 
I, I was very impressed with Andrew Heaney uh, or Haney. Um, when I saw him with the Marlins, I thought he was going to be somebody. Uh, and I mean, he still ended up a three, four starter in the major leagues. Uh, uh, he just never got any better from when I saw him. Uh, and then I think the big guy was, uh, uh, for me, oh man, that's a hard one. Um, I don't know who would the top guy be. It might be six though. Uh, it's just, it's a hard question because like pitching is so, I don't know. I'm not usually wowed. I was very wowed by Hunter Green, and maybe he's part of that answer. Uh, I'm not, but I, I don't know if that's uh, because I saw him the most recent. But like, I was really impressed with what I saw. Uh, will it be a number one starter, number two starter? I'm still a little hesitant on that because it was only a two pitch mix, and uh, uh, but like I've never seen anybody dominate like that. Okay, let's go to the flip side of the question then, Chris. Uh, and by the way, Andrew Heaney on my Tout American League team. And, you know, he is exactly what you said he is, a guy who just didn't yeah. get that much better. Uh, who's a hitter you, you saw live or that you scouted extensively and you thought for sure was a can't-miss prospect? This guy was going to hit in the big leagues and just didn't. I go back to a guy that I scouted early, early in my career, which is Aline Hansen, uh, who's made it to the major leagues. But... Uh, Aline Hansen was a top 15, top 20 prospect uh, that just never got better from Class A. And you realize that the more I got into this, a lot of guys don't get better from a certain point of uh, point of uh, time. Um, I thought um, I thought Kevin uh, Plawicki would be a major league starting catcher uh, to maybe to the edge of All Star level, um, um, but like he all of a sudden sometime between when I saw him in double a uh, to when I saw him in the major leagues and what he's been is he can't get the ball off the ground. And that was something that like when I saw him in hot in low a, especially uh, he just butter, he just like uh, um, sent everything to the gaps, line drives to the gaps all the time. Uh, uh, you learn a lot of the guys are catchers that end up failing that you, that you think are great. So, so you kind of put them, you put a little thing on them. Uh, uh, if you're really excited about a catcher, you tend to go, well, he's a catcher. And I, I probably need to take that excitement down a few pegs. But Plowicki was a guy that I really thought was going to be somebody. How about on the pitching side? Can't miss pitcher, missed. Well, we already talked uh, in the first segment about Kyle Allen. I thought Kyle Allen was a, a, a can't-miss guy. He signed for $250,000 uh, outside of the top 10 for the Mets, I think, in 2008 uh, out of IMG Academy, which is a well-known academy, uh, prep academy, a lot of baseball players. Uh, this year, uh, they'll have a first-rounder come out of there. Next year, they'll have a first-rounder come out of there. They have guys coming out of there all the time. Uh and Kyle Allen was a mix of a fastball slider and a changeup. Uh, the changeup, uh, all, all three pitches had projections uh, of plus. Uh, and I had talked to scouts that had seen him, and they all agreed with me. Uh, but unfortunately, an injury kind of happened to him uh, and just never could get to that point. Um, I've always been kind of – I was always high on uh, Mike Pelfrey. That was kind of before my time before my time of actually evaluating, but I really thought Mike Pelfrey was going to be a lot better than he was. Uh, uh, but the dude really only threw a fastball. And uh, 
that was that was pretty much it and anytime we would make a uh like uh like for instance he threw a splitter for a while uh and this was when i was you know kind of started scouting and i realized that his delivery was different and you're like okay that might work two or three times but it's not going to work the fourth game or the fifth game they're going to catch on to that um and so like those type of guys pelfrey was a big guy that i thought was going to be somebody that wasn't but kyle allen uh even all the way now is a dude that i really thought was going to be better robert stevenson's another dude um uh, robert stevenson had better stuff than 90 percent of the guys that i've uh, done profiles on uh you knew he was going to have some command issues and and there was some question about the change up but like i thought he was a good enough athlete that usually athletes tend to uh, better athletes tend to repeat their deliveries better with the grip, with the new grip kind of thing. So I figured he'd be somebody. And, you know, I think he's in the Rockies pen now uh, and he's not closing either. So like you could see what that kind of thing does to somebody. And finally, uh, how about a hitter that you were pretty sure or positive wasn't going to make the big leagues and actually ended up being a serviceable big leaguer? J.D. Martinez. Uh, oh. J.D. Martinez. Uh, was a guy that I didn't really think too much of. I saw him with the Astros Class A. Uh, it was one of the, um, I think it was the Lexington Legends. Uh, saw him, thought he was a triple-A hitter. Uh, and I know that a lot has gone into him becoming the hitter that he was a few years ago and still kind of is today. Uh, uh, you know, he he embraced uh, new wave coaching before a lot of other guys did. Uh but like one of the things that I never thought he would make it, I'll be honest. I thought maybe a cup of coffee, but like he was a regular player before he hit those, uh, you know, got to those places. Granted, it was bad Detroit, bad uh, um, uh, Houston teams, but still like he was a major leaguer. He was a, a regular uh, and like he was he was definitely my biggest miss of the hitter. How about on the pitching side? Uh, again, like I try not to get too high. I would say Andrew Heaney is probably of the high guys. Uh, you know, I had him as an SP one and he's an SP three, SP four. Um, who, who Colby Allard would be up there too, because I, I had a really good report. His last, um, from a really trusted guy, a guy that I still use as a contact. And it might've been the one report that like kind of proved the rule that he knew everything, you know, you always get that one that's wrong. Um, but like, I guess in that case, I didn't put enough uh, strength in the fact that he was having core issues uh, during his development. And like, just like Kyle Allen, when you have core issues with your back or your, your you know, uh, you tend to overcompensate. And, um, you know, uh, once you have a back injury, your strength never comes back. Uh uh, even through surgery and Colby Howard never got back to the velocity that he was when he was in high school. And as we look ahead to the balance of 2021, which one prospect out there, whether you've seen him or not, do you think is going to be the most impactful as we see the latter part of this season? Um, well, Jared Kalenic already got called up. So that would be the, the easiest answer. Right. Um, but like watching, um, so Wander Franco, uh, who is uh, a raised prospect. He's the number one overall prospect. He's made some significant improvements with his swing plane, his trajectory uh, from the right side. This is a line drive uh, hitter waiting. Like he hits line drives. That's what he does. 
but from from both sides, his swing trajectory was very flat. So he wasn't getting enough backspin to consistently hit home runs. Uh, and so far in spring training and in video looks this year, he's at least changed his – he's a switch hitter. He at least changed his uh, swing from the right-hand side to, to start really incorporating lift into his swing without losing his contact ability. Uh, so, like, while the Rays are a team that are kind of filled up in the middle infield, I think that, uh, you know, th- if this kid is hitting – uh, 350, 360, and AAA, they're not going to be able to keep him down. Uh, and I think that he can impact the, the AL East and the pennant uh, race uh, like nobody else. Uh, and in redraft leagues, he's somebody that I've seen start to get put on the waiver wire uh, because they you know, bought the gold that he was going to be up early. Uh, the Rays don't bring guys up early. Uh, it's you got to know your organizations when you're trying to get rookies in there. The Mariners made sense, you know, grab Jared Kalenic in, in, in redrafts and stuff. You can hold on to him a few weeks. And then once the injuries come, you know, you might still hold on to him because he's going to be up next week. Uh, but a guy like Wander Franco, there was no path to him being in the major leagues until July or August. Like there's just no path because of the way that organization runs and, the way that they're so matchup uh, heavy type uh, team, they're going to go with their Willie Adamases, their Joey Wendells. They're going to go with their guys like that, the Yandy Diazes, uh, you know, to, to plug holes in the middle infielder, the Mike Brizard. Uh I'm missing somebody, but like, you know what I'm talking about. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's very important. We've talked about this all the time here on Baseball HQ Radio, so many guests have come on and said, you have to understand the organization's approach, not just to prospects, but to pitching in general. Are they good at developing pitchers, bad at developing pitchers? Do they have a track record of doing things a certain way? And if you know about uh, the Tampa approach to prospects, which is bring them along slowly, then you have to temper your expectations that uh, it's a bit of wishful thinking to say, well, Wander Franco is so different that they're just going to ignore a well-established team philosophy to bring this one guy up. I mean, it could have happened, but you have to admit the odds are against it because they don't do that. Yeah, and and another thing is is to know, you know, kind of have some insight on what they're actually looking for when they promote a guy. Uh, And one of the things that they look for is uh, from from just observing and scouting their double-A, scouting their A-ball team, uh, and I guess now I scout their high A team uh, with the with the change in 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 uh, divisions and in in how things are made up now. Um, but like they're looking at guys, they they want to make sure that their hitters aren't expanding the strike zone. Uh, they want to see them at some sort of benchmark. And I don't know this. Like I don't I don't really have true contacts within the Rays organization. I know people, but like I can. You can kind of see these type of things happen. Like, uh, you know, I I am able to get some stats that aren't publicly available, and you can see, hey, you know, that guy's improved uh, his O swing, for instance, which is a thing that you can get on major league guys, but you can't get them on minor league guys. Uh, and like knowing that, like if I if I hear that he uh, is you know has made an improvement on that, uh, you know, it's already too early in the season to even take that whatever his O swing is right now, I haven't looked it up or asked to, to get it, but like to look at those things, those are the things that matter to the Rays. Now, 
they don't matter to the angels as much. They might now under, under uh, their new general manager, but in previous years, that thing didn't matter. They, they didn't, you know, Oh, he's making hard contact on that slider that just uh, dumped out of the zone. But was that a quality slider? You know, you know, they rather you not swing at those. And, and a lot of organizations, a lot of the more successful organizations are using things like O swing and, you know, using, using point of contact is a very important tool. Is this guy swinging at the right strikes? Is he not swinging at, at breaking pitches? Like that's a big deal to a lot of these teams uh, before they call guys up. And, like uh, I remember a few years ago, Ahmad uh, Ahmed Rosario was in Triple A, just beating the world off. Uh, uh, and next thing you know, everybody's clamoring for him to be called up. And the Mets, being kind of weak under the old ownership, called the guy up. And uh, you know, I don't think Rosario made will ever get to his ceiling because he was rushed because of good stats. Um, Cause like I watched him and this guy was expanding the zone, very aggressive. And you just can't, guys can't learn in the big leagues, um, plate discipline. It, it just doesn't happen. And if you're going to see failures among prospects, it's usually on guys that are rushed. And, uh, so like I rather, and, and it goes to a different subject. I rather own guy or Matt or roster guys from organizations that take their time like the Cardinals, like the, um, who haven't had the best track record lately, but they take their time. The Rays, the Indians, those type of organizations, I, in redrafts, I'm more likely to get them in, uh, you know, as free agent pickups during the season than, than in other, other teams. Don't pick the fruit till it's ripe. Uh, yep. Chris, I know there are some Baseball HQ Radio listeners who can't get enough prospect news, and we have some excellent news for them. Uh, BaseballHQ.com is launching a prospects pod, and you're hosting it. What are you going to call the show? We're actually calling it, and actually I'm the co-host. I, I, I guess I'm, I'm kind of uh, directing it, producing it, and all that kind of stuff, but it's actually Brent Hershey and I. Um, and uh, it's going to be called Eyes, the Eyes Have It podcast. It's essentially going to be the Eyes Have It podcast, the Baseball HQ Prospect podcast. I forget exactly what we settled on, but uh, we'll right just off call the it the Eyes Have It one. Yeah, it's a nice one, yeah. And w- what kind of content will you be offering on the pod? Well, it's it's going to be a combination. We're going to um, focus. Uh, now, you know, there's a lot of fantasy uh, uh, prospect podcasts out there. Uh, there's a lot of fantasy podca- podcasts out there, period. Uh, we're looking to be a little different. Uh, we're a little different than, than any of the real fantasy prospect sites out there. We get live looks and we also do the analysis part as well. Uh, while there's many great ones, uh, like I listen a lot to Rotowire, to James and Clay. Uh, I, I enjoy their podcast and I'll also listen to uh, uh, the, the ones that Eric Cross does with Jesse, Jesse Roach. I, I can't think of what that's called. But like a lot of them are, you know, guys that are analyzing stuff, uh, stats, that kind of thing, and not necessarily getting out to the ballparks. Uh, you know, James would love to get out to a lot of ballparks, but he lives in Wisconsin. So, like, it's one minor league team and that's it. So, uh, I, I, we're trying to take the, bring the live looks, bring the analysts and put it together just like our website, just like the minors thing. So, we'll talk about our lives looks. Uh, like, for instance, next week, we'll be talking about Cade Cavalli of the Nationals because 
Okay, Cavalli is the guy that Brent saw last night uh, pitch for Wilmington. Uh, we'll also take those live looks and we'll also uh, analyze them for fantasy purposes, where they fit on, on, on your roster. Uh, you know, we'll also talk about keeper and dynasty strategies, uh, just not draft strategies, also like trading strategies. Uh, uh, well, I'd never recommend anybody to sell off their team. A lot of guys like to be in perennial uh, rebuilds, like some of their major league uh, teams that they root for. Um, like knowing which prospects to try to acquire in a situation where you're rebuilding. We're going to just cover strategy. We're going to cover prospects. We're going to do scouting. We're going to do a lot of different things in this podcast and uh, hopefully have a lot of guests on there uh, from very different parts of, uh, of life. Uh, uh, but all baseball guys, hopefully I get some of my org contacts on there. Uh, uh, we'll get people from other sites uh, and, you know, have conversations with people from baseball HQ. Uh, when are you starting and how often is the podcast going to come out? It will be once a week. We are, uh, we recorded a practice one on Tuesday just to see how it went. Uh, and it went really well. Um, we, we were very happy with it and thought about releasing it, but, um, I'm glad we didn't. We want to, we want to have some momentum before we do it. Uh, so Monday is when we record because Mondays in, in minor league baseball is the day off. Uh, no, no games happen on Mondays except for in the, uh, the, triple a pacific league so and brent and i are both east coasters so like we ain't, we're not going to be scouting those games uh and we're going to record on monday and hopefully get it out there on tuesday uh and uh you know once a week hopefully throughout the season if we're successful if we're still doing it uh in the fall uh we're going to probably bring it back during our organizational report weeks um, and also while we're promoting the minor league baseball analysts and hopefully have some guests on as well, uh, during those times, uh, during that time of year, when maybe we can get somebody who's running the player development of a major league organization to come on and talk about his prospects. You're listening to baseball HQ radio, this old podcast. And, uh, our guest is Chris blessing, uh, soon to be the co-host of the eyes have it podcast produced by baseballhq.com with Brent Hershey. And, I always like to wrap up these discussions, Chris, by looking at some slumps, pumps, dumps, and jumps. Players who are struggling, players who are overachieving, that kind of thing. Uh, we'll go out on a high note here with a slump, a player who is struggling but worth hanging on to. Well, I'm going to go into the prospect ranks because sure. that's, that's where I'm at. So uh, a lot has been said about Mackenzie Gore not being in the major leagues right now. He's the San Diego Padres. Uh uh, top pitching prospect. He's probably their number two prospect. I know some people have uh, him number one over CJ uh, Abrams. Uh, but like, I fully believe that uh, what he's going through right now is uh, he's going through some mechanical issues. Uh, he's too good of a pitcher to, uh, for things to completely fall apart. Like they kind of have uh, first off uh, during spring training. And then also at the, the, the alternate uh, training site last year, there were reports that his arm slot had, had gone down and maybe he was dealing with some sort of injury. Uh, but like everybody I've talked to in the video that I've, uh, I've watched, uh, you know, kind of confirms that he's starting to figure it out. So hopefully, hopefully he's uh, the number one, number two starter for the Padres in a couple of years. That's, that's what I kind of see him. 
uh, becoming. How about a pump, a player overachieving worth selling high? I would have said Dustin May, but he then got injured. So, like, I don't think Justin May has the arsenal to sustain as a starting pitcher. And, of course, he got hurt. How about somebody to dump, an underachiever who's just not going to recover? I have a hard time believing Keston Hewer is going to recover. For what we've discussed earlier, that uh, there's some... You know, everything has to be fine for him to be a successful player. Um, I'm always very leery of guys that are are um, high um, streaky guys. And I think Hewer kind of falls into that. And uh, streaky guys tend to be guys that I try not to um, try not to roster on my team. And now our jumps, these are guys you're going to jump on if they're available as free agents in your pool. How about a hitter? Uh, hitter I'm jumping on right now is uh, a kid that is in, um, I think he's in high A right now. His name's Luis Santana. Um, he is an Astros prospect. Um, very short guy, very stocky short guy. I don't know where he plays, um, but uh, the dude has tremendous power and uh um, has one of the best bat flips there is. And I, I don't think he's he's uh, rostered on most uh, dynasty leagues uh, anywhere, really. An 80-level bat flip. And finally, uh, how about a pitcher you're jumping on? I really like Slade uh, Ciccone, who's the Arizona Diamondbacks uh, prospect. Uh, he was drafted last year. I don't think anybody had him in the top 100. Uh uh, my public, uh, top 100, he was just outside of it. Um, uh, I think Eric, uh, Logan Hagen at Fangraphs might've had him close to 100, but I don't think he was in his 100 either. Uh, he was a dude that performed exceptionally well at, uh, um, working out with the Arizona Diamondbacks last year. Um, and I heard nothing but praise from, from scouts that saw him during spring training this year. Chris Blessing slump, Mackenzie Gore, San Diego, Dustin May is his pump. We had to kind of work that one out. Uh, a dump, Keston Hura of Milwaukee, and his jumps, uh, Luis Santana, a Houston prospect, and Slade Jaconi, an Arizona prospect. Geez, uh, Chris, this has been delightful. Remind us where our listeners can keep up with Chris Blessing, and don't forget to mention the podcast. Yes, um, I've I'm at many places at many, many times. Uh, at the... Uh, um, underscore blessing on Twitter um, is where you can find my live looks as they're going on. Uh, Baseball HQ, I write a column uh, every week and one every other week. Uh, we got the Eyes Have It podcast, which is premiering next week, next Tuesday. Uh, and uh, that will be a weekly thing. Uh, during the off season, you can find me at Minor League Baseball Analyst if you buy that. The Baseball Forecaster, I, I write, a, write an article in there every year. Um, also Lindy's baseball preview. Uh, and then sometimes Steve Gardner has me on USA Today, uh, uh, sports weekly. So I'm, I'm pump out articles there as well. So if you can't find Chris blessing, you're just not looking hard enough. No, I'm in a lot of places. <laughs> Thanks a million for doing this. It was really delightful. We'll get you back again later on this year. Yes. Thank you, Patrick. And I owe you big time. 
Chris Blessing is a member of the scouting team at BaseballHQ.com. One more quick break here, then we're back with our HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and Extra Innings all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. And this crowd just trading forward at every pitch. Here it comes, a swing of it. Two strikes, ball one to Dale Mitchell. Listen to this crowd. I'll guarantee that nobody, but nobody has left this ballpark. And if somebody did manage to leave early, man, he's missing the greatest. Two strikes and a ball. Mitchell waiting. Stands deep, feet close together. Larson is ready. Gets the sign. Two strikes, ball one. Here comes the pitch. Strike three. A no-hitter. A perfect game for John Larson. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. Frequent Flyer and my extra innings comment are coming up. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Tampa middle infield prospect Vidal Bruhan is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The 23-year-old Vidal Bruhan, who checked in as the number 30 prospect in our preseason HQ 100, has some of the best speed in the minors, giving him appeal to fantasy managers desperate for hard-to-come-by steals at the Major League level. Bruhan, who was born in the Dominican Republic, signed with the Rays as a 16-year-old for the bargain basement price of just $15,000. He burst onto the prospect scene in 2017, hitting 285 with a 378 on on-base percentage and a 415 slugging percentage, with 16 stolen bases and almost as many walks as strikeouts as a 19-year-old in his full-season debut. Since then, the switch-hitting Bruhan has proven to be one of the better peer hitters in the minors and now owns a career slash line of 296 with a 380 on base percentage and a 424 slugging percentage with 152 stolen bases in 406 minor league games. Despite those impressive numbers, he hasn't generated a ton of buzz on the prospect scene, in large part because scouts and analysts weren't convinced that his hit tool would stand up as he faced more advanced competition and because of his well below average power. At the plate, Bruhan has excellent plate discipline, a quick stroke, and plus bat-to-ball skills. Over six minor league seasons, Bruhan has walked 193 times and struck out just 202 times in over 1,500 minor league at-bats. At a time when the game at the major league level has become more and more about home runs and strikeouts, Bruhan is a throwback and profiles as a traditional leadoff hitter who gets on base and uses his speed to disrupt opposing defenses. Defensively, Bruhan is a plus defender at second base with excellent range, good hands, and enough arm to stick at the position. He's also seen action at shortstop, third base, and center field, giving him the kind of position flexibility that the Rays love. At 5'9", 180, Bruhan is unlikely to ever develop above-average power, but he has been off to a red-hot start in 2021, hitting 407 with four home runs in his first 27 at-bats for AAA Durham, and fantasy managers looking for a versatile player who steals bases, draws plenty of walks, and hits for average should definitely take a look at the Tampa Bay Rays' Vidal Bruhan. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Baseball HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon is also a member of the Baseball HQ scouting team and has his Minor League Minute here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. And speaking of scouting, this week at BaseballHQ.com, the Daily Call-Ups report is in full swing, and we have reports on Oakland right-hander James Caprellian, Mets outfielder Khalil Lee, and all the prospects being called up to the show. 
Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Seattle, catcher Cal Raleigh is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He's an enterprising young catcher who could be in line for a big promotion soon. A recent graduate of Florida State University, earning a degree in business entrepreneurship, 24-year-old Seattle Mariners catcher Cal Raleigh has also been sharpening his baseball acumen in hopes of making his major league debut in 2021, perhaps not far off. Although his resume arguably lacks experience with only two years of professional baseball the Miners plus one pandemic-shortened season at Seattle's alternate site, Cal Raleigh has only amassed 626 minor league at-bats in 165 minor league games. That's why 24-year-old Seattle Mariners, future entrepreneur or catcher, Cal Raleigh, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league and especially in keeper leagues. Even so, Cal Raleigh was awarded the single-A Advanced California Leagues, appropriately abbreviated as the Cal League, Rookie of the Year Award in 2019 while going freaking nuts in Modesto while playing for the Modesto Nuts with 22 home runs, ranked third overall in Diggers, plus going yard seven more times at Double-A Arkansas after his July 2019 promotion. So did we also mention that Cal Raleigh is a switch-hitting catcher with 30-plus home run power potential? Wow! As previously pointed out, switch-hitting catcher Cal Raleigh belted 29 home runs total, one short of 30, between two levels of the minors in 2019. To put that in perspective, since 2005, only three catchers have hit 30 or more home runs at the major league level. Gary Sanchez... Mitch Garver, and did you guess a third? We'll wait. It was Mike Napoli with 30 home runs back in 2011, 10 years ago. Yet only Gary Sanchez has done it more than once, cracking 33 and 34 knocks in 2017 and 2019, respectively. A rare breed indeed. And he's not even a switch hitter like Cal Raleigh. Digging deeper, something we love to do at BaseballHQ.com, Cal Raleigh's linear weighted power index in the Cal League, where he played a majority of his games in 2019, was 170, where league average is 100, placing him among the slugging elite above 150, according to the tools and metrics available to you at BaseballHQ.com. In other words, 24-year-old Seattle Mariners enterprising young catcher Cal Raleigh could be an elite pickup, especially in keeper leagues, as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his frequent flyer commentary here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about Theo Epstein and fixing the game. The other day, I was listening to the Bill Simmons podcast. On this particular edition, Simmons was speaking with Theo Epstein, the former GM of Simmons' beloved Red Sox as well as the Chicago Cubs. Epstein's latest gig is working for the commissioner's office as a consultant for on-field matters. 
by which he means he's looking at ways to make the game as it's played on the field more interesting, more entertaining, and therefore more profitable. Epstein was very candid about what the game should be, learned from extensive consultations with fans and baseball insiders. More balls in play, more displays of athleticism, and a faster pace. If you ask fans in, in surveys what their favorite events are at, when they go to a game or watch on TV or stream a game, it's doubles, triples, and stolen bases that all involve like action, athleticism, players in motion, players in motion like all over the field, suspense. Those are the top three events. But that's not what current baseball provides. Triples, if you go back to our, uh, our last, last year's stats, lowest rate in baseball history. Doubles, lowest rate of, of doubles frequency since 1992. And, and stolen bases, going back to 19, our last full season, lowest frequency of stolen base attempts since, I think, 1964. So the three things that fans like the most, triples, doubles, and stolen bases, this style of play that we have, we're giving fans less of what they like. And the things that they don't like, like pitching changes and dead time, there's more of those things. Because changes in the game over the last 10 or 20, maybe even 30 years, have changed what's at its core. The battle between the pitcher and the hitter. It's a fundamentally different game when one quarter of the hitters are striking out fundamentally different and, and I think worse game, you know, when you, when you just don't, when you have the ball out of play that much. The biggest issue I think is, is fixing the, the pitcher batter dynamic, getting that back into balance, getting that into, into equilibrium. Pitchers are just too dominant and strikeouts are just too plentiful because modern baseball has weaponized pitching with analyzing and optimizing biomechanics advanced training to improve velocity and pitch spin, optimizing pitch mixes and attack plans and all that sort of stuff. At the same time, pitcher usage has changed with the massive influx of relievers and in-game management of pitching, all of which has made it easier for pitchers to go all out in shorter bursts looking for strikeouts and further increasing the numbers of them. The result, Epstein says, is that the balance between pitchers and hitters has shifted and not for the better of the game. So how does baseball get the game to be a little back into equilibrium, a little less one-sided, so that fans get to see more hits, more doubles and triples, more stolen bases? I'll have my recommendations on that a little later. But for now, let's consider a key argument that some fans and hot take artists make. You remember back in 1968, or if you don't actually remember it yourself, you've heard about it. Bob Gibson threw a 112 ERA and an 085 whip, and the game's response was to lower the mound by 10 inches. Well, we know they can't do that again because the rubber is now only 10 inches higher than the field surface, and they don't want anybody pitching off flat ground like a softball pitcher. In the interview, Epstein pointed out that lowering the mound would have the general effect of lowering the release points of all the pitchers in the game. And lower release points, he said, make high four-seam fastballs, which are already hugely effective at generating whiffs, even more effective at generating whiffs. Epstein also said that the focus on mound height reduction has obscured a much more important development that they made after that 1968 season. They lowered the mound um, by you know 10 inches, a significant amount. But what they also did at the same time was they changed the strike zone. That's what led the hitters to, to, to have the bounce back. What we think upon going back and studying the data is that it was actually the strike zone that was leading to the pitchers dominating 
Yes, the strike zone. We all know this. And since the main source of inaccuracy in the strike zone is the umpires, <coughs> Angel Hernandez, it seems like only a matter of time until Major League Baseball turns what is an impossible job for a human being over to the cameras and the lasers and the LIDARs and the computers to get the strike zone right and keep it consistently right. The RoboUmps have had workouts in the Arizona Fall League in 2019, and we heard earlier from Chris Blessing that strike zone automation was also tested in the Independent Atlantic League. When the automated zone is introduced for real play, they're going to have to rewrite what a strike is. If they stick with the letters-to-knees definition, the strikeout rate's going to skyrocket because the umps won't give a lot of those pitches nowadays, especially high in the zone where the strikeouts live. Similarly, the zone will have to be adjusted for those pitches that have a corner of the ball just nick an edge of the plate. Baseball knows it needs more offense, and not just from home runs. As Theo Epstein said, we need more balls hit into the field so we get more doubles and triples, more base runners, and more web gems defensive plays. We need more stolen bases, too, especially on my tout American League team. So it's really good that they're thinking about it, and it's good in particular that they have a guy like Theo Epstein thinking about it. It seems like he's approaching the problem in the right frame of mind. It's important to just be thoughtful and intentional about the ways like the rules can influence what you see on the field. We just have to be open-minded. You know, look, we, we can tweak the playing rules. We can tweak the ball itself. We, we can look at some of the dimensions on the field. It's incumbent on us to find out as much as we can about which of these changes work, what variables are most important so that we can work collaboratively with the players who also have an interest in making the game the most exciting version of, of, of the sport and then, you know, just nudge us towards that very best version of baseball. And since this is my commentary, I'll add my two cents worth, Canadian funds. As Theo Epstein said, channeling Joe Sheehan, who said the same thing five years or more ago, get more balls into play that aren't home runs. The first thing they have to do is make it easier for hitters to hit without increasing home runs. That's going to be a two-part proposition. Part 1A is to make the strike zone smaller and more consistent, <coughs> robo-umps, and make the rule that the entire ball has to be in the zone at some point to be called a strike. No more of this nonsense where you get a strike when a 32nd of an inch of ball catches a 64th of an inch of plate. This is an argument that's often made against robo-strikes. A hockey puck isn't a goal unless the whole thing goes across the goal line, so there's a precedent in pro sports. Part 1B is fixing the ball so they don't fly as far. They could make home runs harder to come by by moving fences out, but that's not possible in some parks. They could raise the fences, but that's hard in some parks too. And besides, as friend of the pod Todd Zola tweeted the other day, the fences should always be low enough to allow outfielders to make those great leaping catches and rob some home runs. So they need to get the material scientists and physicists working on some way to soften the balls or make them less airworthy so they just don't fly as far. Number two, make stadiums with gigantic foul grounds, reduce them closer to the median size of all the foul grounds in baseball. Get some math whiz to figure out how, because there's not much duller than watching a guy foul out. Three, make every TV contract contingent on the networks following this rule. When a ball is put into play, they have to show the entire field from behind and above the plate. 
We all have very big, very wide, very fine-grained, high-def TVs now, and someone needs to tell ESPN about it. We don't need a close-up of the guy who was on third, jogging home, while we miss the bang-bang play at second. Show it to us in widescreen, and let us see the whole thing. Speaking of TV, I've noticed here in Canada that during pace-killing moments like mound visits, pitching changes, and dealing with injuries, the broadcasters are shrinking the game screen down and using most of the screen to run 10 or 15 second ads. Make this mandatory and cut 45 seconds off every half-inning break. Saves 13 minutes every game right there. Number four, pitch clock, 15 seconds. But don't have the clock visible on the field. Just make an audible signal to one of the umps and let them make the call. Pitchers will figure it out. Number five, fix the Pareto pitchers that plague so many games. Cut mound visits of any kind to two per game, make every reliever pitch to three hitters whether or not an inning ends, and require all rosters to have no more than 11 pitchers at a time, and no Los Angeles Dodgers injured list shenanigans either. That way, there might be some usable hitters in American League-only free agent pools. Number six, 81-game suspension for any pitcher who uses foreign substances on the ball. Number seven, any batter who takes even one of his pinky toes out of the batter's box gets a strike. No exceptions and no hitter timeouts. I swear, some of these guys are worse than golfers. And number eight, any player whose home run trot lasts for more than 45 seconds will be ejected. Exception for pitchers, of course, and a lifetime exception for Bartolo Colon. I could go on, but I'm tired of talking about this, and I'm sure you're tired of listening. That Theo Epstein interview is on the Bill Simmons podcast of May the 7th. Check it out. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 14th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 24 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. Of course, I want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Chris Blessing from the scouting team at BaseballHQ.com, a top-notch scouting analyst, an excellent podcast guest, and of course, I'm looking forward to the new Baseball HQ scouting podcast that Chris will be hosting with Brent Hershey. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. And our Frequent Flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Extra Innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on those BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go wherever you catch your pod and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. That helps us find new listeners. New listeners help us keep the podcast going. It's a win-win situation. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with another Friday full edition with the wise guy of fantasy baseball, Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic. That's Gene McCaffrey next Friday on Baseball HQ Radio. So long for now. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators. 
or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.